Hey, all you monsters out there. Time for another episode of the show. Got a special episode this time around. Two parts. First part, my buddy Ed Moore and I, after covering supernatural thrillers, were able to sit down with artist and co-plotter for part of the series, Val Mayrick. You may know him as uh, you know, co-creator of Howard the Duck and many other things. Uh, he was able to join us uh, for about 40-45 minutes, sit down and talk about some of his uh, career, his work, and supernatural thrillers as well. So stay tuned for that right after the break. But after then, another quick short break, Ed and I dive into another Bronze Age appearance of A Living Mummy and Kantu in Marvel 2-in-1. Real fun uh, episode uh, with uh, Ed and I as we have some good laughs over uh, good old Ben Grimm uh, meeting up with Encanto, the living mummy. Welcome back to another episode of the Bronze Age of Horror Comics. This one is going to be a bit different than usual, as my co-host for Supernatural Thrillers, Ed Moore, and I have a special guest with us this evening. This gentleman is probably most notably known as the co-creator of Howard the Duck, but he has a, was a staple of Marvel Comics during the Bronze Age, working on such titles as Man-Thing, Dracula Lives, you name it. Creatures on the Loose, uh, I could go on and on. But uh, everybody, give a warm welcome to the show to Val Merrick. How are you, my friend? I'm fine. How's everything going with you? Everything cool? You guys, uh, You have, I think you told me uh, you have some horses and you have a big farm or something like that right now? No, I don't have a farm. I, I, I have a horse, but mm -hmm. I bought him at a ranch about 20 miles from here and um he's a good horse i really like him well fantastic yeah my daughter when she was just a tiny little kid she used to take some horseback riding lessons and then i can't remember why she kind of got away from it but we were just talking about it not too long ago and she was like you know what i wish i would have kept going with that and it was it was very fun love uh love horses great animals so okay all right well yeah we're gonna just uh you know jump right in here Kind of just want to talk about, you know, your uh, Bronze Age horror work at Marvel. You know, if you uh, uh, can kind of talk to us about that. I know I didn't realize, but, you know, when I was doing some research here, I didn't realize um, that you had kind of started out working with uh, Dan Adkins, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Had it not been for Dan, I don't know if I ever would have gotten into the business. Uh, actually. Yeah, he, yeah, he's a great inker and a great artist. I really like his stuff. And I know he lived in Pennsylvania for a while. That's that's when I really got interested in his career. Yeah, he was in Pennsylvania up uh, last couple of decades before he died. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but yeah, he was a fantastic inker. And then did uh, you also work there with uh, P. Craig Russell as well, I think? Yes. Yeah, yes. he's one of my favorite artists too. Craig um, had gotten with Dan a couple of months earlier before I had. I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, wow. What, what a trio right there. <laughs> That's fantastic for me to even just think about it. That's the three names that when I think of Bronze Age, especially Marvel, you know, Doctor Strange and horror titles and stuff like that, that always jump out at me, especially, uh, uh, you know, like I said, you and Craig Russell for sure. So, all right. Well, so uh, we're going to just jump in here with, you know, uh, some questions, uh, you know, maybe that you might uh, be able to enlighten us about some of the things like your creative process and things like that. So, uh, Ed, uh, whatever you uh, have, uh, fire away here. All righty. Uh, first, I, I definitely want to say thank you for joining us this evening, uh, Mr. Merrick. It's uh, a pleasure for me uh, also to, I guess, virtually meet you in this case. Uh, I appreciate you coming on the podcast with us. 
Well, thank you. It's, it's fun to be here. All right. Uh, something that jumped out at me, you um, you first showed up on Supernatural Thrillers on issue two, and then there was a gap uh, and you became the regular artist. What was it that got you the assignment for issue two? And then why the gap before you became the regular artist on the book? I can't speak to that gap you're talking about because I, I don't really remember that. Um, okay. That well, it's been a long time ago. Certainly. Uh, I'm sure it just had to do with scheduling. Um, Mar Marvel at that time, you know, was was just a comic book factory. You know, they 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 were churning out a lot of books every month. Um, a lot of artists, a lot of inkers, colorists, letterers. Um, I'm sure there was some snag somewhere that uh, prevented me from, you know going on with, with with that particular issue. As far as the first issue, now what, what was your question about number two? Uh, what what was it that brought you to Supernatural Thrillers number two and, and got you that assignment? I think it was because I was working on the uh, Frankenstein monster, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, uh, you know, when I got into Marvel, I didn't really want to do superheroes. I still am not a fan of superheroes. I don't read them. I don't see their movies. Um, I know that's almost like a sacrilege, but I, th <laughs> I think um, I think myself and Howard Chaikin are the only people who have actually come out and said we don't like superheroes; they're silly, and we don't want to draw them. <laughs> so, um, okay, fair enough. Yeah, but um, mm -hmm. there might be other artists who have uh, who have that same sentiment, but they don't openly say that because you know they, they, their bread and butter is drawing you know superheroes periodically, but. Um, I um, got into Marvel because I wanted to do Conan. And uh, by the time I was able to, you know, get working for Marvel, of course, Barry Smith was on Conan and uh, doing a terrific job. And um, and there were really no other sword and sorcery characters except for the, the character that they actually they actually kind of got a Marvel was able to get a. Um, a character for me from from a, a series of books by John oh, I forget his last name now but um, a writer who wrote um, Thongor the Barbarian and the Thongor uh, series was never really as, in 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 book form was never really as popular of course as Conan and and um, but they were able to get the franchise the, the licensing for that character and uh, I they procured that and I was able to, you know, have a barbarian character to work on, which I were, that was the first full length book I think I worked on. And, uh, and the mummy came after that, I think because Thungor was, was being canceled. Um, and I think I went on for six or eight issues, but, uh, then, uh, I moved on to the horror stuff, which suited me as well. I, I like doing the horror stuff. Um, it, it wasn't it wasn't sword and sorcery, but it was equally as um, moody and uh, interesting to do in terms of visuals. Mm -hmm. right. So in in your uh, preference for the the more uh, fantasy or uh, I, I've always called Conan uh, sword and sandal kind of uh, fantasy. Yeah, the. the the, the things that we see in your early career for Marvel, uh, a, a lot of your career for Marvel, wouldn't, in my mind, necessarily fit into that. Dracula, Frankenstein, the mummy. D is that close enough for you in to, to be considered fantasy, or was it an issue of th those are just the type of assignments that Marvel gave you? 
Well, both. I mean, Marvel decided to relegate me to that particular um, play, that position in, in, in their lineup of books, um, which was okay with me, though, because, you know, it really just has to do with the, um, the way you would illustrate something. You, would, you, could, you could illustrate a Conan story with the same style and the same approach that you'd say did a Dracula story, because it, it's, it's moody. You know, they're, they're, it's, it's a it's a kind of it's a gritty kind of realism, um, and, and you're you're focusing a lot on on um, you know certain facial features and, and movements that are that are not that are not superhero like, but they're but they're they're more naturalistic. So even though it wasn't dealing with the, with with a guy with a muscular guy with a sword, it was still something that 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 to me at least um, pr- presented itself with the same dramatic. Um, uh, dramatic elements that needed to be there. Uh, and and it, my drawing style, let's put it that way, I think adapted just as well to both of those, um, to one as well as the other. Okay, okay. Um, I, I also believe that you were particularly a fan of uh, facial features and expressions, and I would imagine that the horror genre would give you lots of opportunity to to work on those types of uh, of illustrations. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean that's that's you know when I, when I I grew up, I was not a huge I was not an, an immense comic book fan to speak of when I got into, into the business. As a little kid, I read comics, of course, and then I, in college I started reading a lot of the, the um, Warren publications, the black and white public magazine uh, format comics. I thought they were terrifically drawn by some of those European artists and. Um, Esteban Moroto, um, to, 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 who was my favorite. And, you know, a lot of the stuff I grew up reading was, you know, the classic comics. If you remember what those were, they were, they were classics illustrated. They were mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. historical um, events or historical periods of time, the Revolutionary War, whatever Napoleon, you know, adopted to the, to the comic book format. And there was just a lot of interest. I just had a lot of interest in that. Um, and then I read Mad Magazine uh, voraciously, right. and and Mort Drucker and all those terrific artists in there that that just could do marvelous faces, um, and faces with so many different kinds of expressions, such a wide range of expressions, and yeah, that was something that I that appealed to me f- for sure, and and again, which you know you you can't really do much of that with you can't really exercise that those muscles with with a, with a superhero because they have they, they've got masks on. And, and the masks almost, you know, uh, basically function as helmets, so you really can't see much, much through them. Right. Yeah. And yeah, definitely with superheroes, you you can't even take that off a lot of times because the superhero is identified by that headdress mask, whatever they have on. So if you, right. you know, you take it off, and and they essentially just become another person in the crowd. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, Billy, uh, there were some um, some questions you wanted to get into, sir. Yeah, I just wanted to say, as you guys were talking, I did not want to interrupt, but uh, the Thongor was uh, Lynn Carter. Uh, that's who. Yes. that's whose character yeah, that, that was. Okay. Yeah, yeah. great, great writer, uh, sci-fi writer, Lovecraft Mark. Yeah, really. really oh yeah, <laughs> really good writer. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just wondering too, like you know, it's you know when you first started out with the you know Living Mummy. Um, your uh 
you know, your the writer you worked with was Steve Gerber. If you had any, you know, kind of memories and like maybe what your creative process was like with him. I know some writers and artists would kind of uh, either by telephone or by getting together kind of collaborate about things. And then other times it was just, hey, here's what we want to draw and here's a script and you would draw it. But I was just kind of wondering about that. Yeah, I don't I'm not really sure when I met Steve personally. I was still living in Ohio when I got when I my first three years in the business. And um, Steve, I believe, was in New York by then. Um, so I primarily we were just working the, the, the typical Marvel way where the writer would submit a plot, you know, like like basically a, a, a two page written plot, a few paragraphs of the story. Um, they just submit that to the editor. The editor wrote, okay, and then it went on to the writer or to the artist. And it was up to the artist to, you know, panel by, you know, page by page, do the panel by panel breakdown, um, which was the Marvel way as opposed to what back then was called the DC way in which every page was plot was, you know, plotted out by the writer, how many panels there would be, how large they were, what, what image would be in each panel, what point of view. Um, from each character, whether it would be a close-up, a master shot, whatever. Um, and actually, that's the way a lot of comics are written now, as far as I can tell. But um, I haven't, you know, I, I'm not working that that much in the business, but right now. But um, the 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 Marvel way of the approach of just of you know presenting the plot to the artist was really, um, I guess, quite revolutionary at the time. Um, it it you know it it allowed the artist to have a lot more control and the artist had to really have his act together in terms of storytelling. Uh, and, but it, it seemed to work. It, I, I can recall, I worked for Marvel for quite a few years. And when I worked, moved to New York city, I did a job for DC and they gave me this full script, you know, with already captions and balloons and so forth indicated panel by panel. And I, I was, I felt just so overwhelmed by that. I felt just so confined by that. Like, Oh my God, well, what if I don't want to do five panels? What if I could do it four, you know? <laughs> so, mm -hmm. that, anyway, that I'm not sure if I answered your question because I kind of rambled on onto that. Um, no, no, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, and and kind of, you know, I know after a couple of issues, you switched to um, Tony Isabella, and I was just wondering too, are there any differences between the two, or if there was any different process there, or it was kind of the same deal? Because I did notice at some point they started listing you as co-plotter as well, which I do like to see that, especially when mm -hmm. I know it's in that era where, like you said, the artist was literally, you know, adding a lot to the story itself, not only with the visual storytelling, but with some plot points as well. So that was another thing I wanted to kind of ask you about. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, Tony and, and Steve, of course, are different personalities, different talents, different writers. And but I, I didn't have any problem working with either one of them at the time. Uh, Tony was very uh, uh, amenable to work with. Tony um, was a native Ohioan, although he was living in New York City at the time. And so we would talk about. He was from Cleveland, and I had been to Cleveland quite a few times, and we talked about that. So we 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 had a pretty um, you know amenable relationship. Um, I only co-plotted one mummy as far as I remember, um, just, just to be accurate about that. And now maybe I did more than one, but the one I, I specifically remember that I co-plotted was about the Israeli, uh, woman, Israeli soldier. Yes. 
and and the, the mummy um, intervened between her and a conflict with a with a with a Palestinian tank, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not sure what inspired me to do that. Uh, I, I wasn't necessarily that much involved in the Israeli um, Arab conflict. Um, it wasn't like I was following that every day on the news, but something about it must have um, really rung my bell because I thought this would be a really cool time to. Also, what I wanted to do is I wanted to place the mummy in the world that he came from, but in the present day. And, you know, there would be such a juxtaposition, you know, of, of, of what was happening, you know, in Egypt, in the Middle East. And, and, and from the, when the time when he became when he became mummified and and and, and then the, the, the world he wakes up in, you know, which which would ha- which would be immeasurably different. And rather, you know, disconcerting to to him, I'm sure. So there was that aspect of it that I wanted to get into that story as well. I'm not sure how well it worked. I haven't re- reread that story for quite a while. I think that was one of our favorites, wasn't it, Ed? We enjoyed it, that one quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it really was um, kind of uh, caught us off guard that, yeah, you had the the singular soldier versus tank, essentially. And yeah, we, we definitely enjoyed that issue. Oh, good, good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's funny. Fact, you're, yeah, you're go the ahead. first guys that ever really commented on that on that issue. Um, <laughs> I, I never really, to this day, never really knew how 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 well it was received. Oh, it's a lot of fun, yeah. And it's interesting for you to say that that's really the only one that you kind of co-plotted because I think there was at least four or five issues straight where they listed you as you know kind of the co-storyteller, co-plotter. But out of all of them, yeah, I think that's the one that kind of is the outlier that kind of stands out from the series. They're all good, but. I think that one is definitely one that, you know, when Ed and I talked about it a couple of months ago, we were just like, wow, this is really interesting. It wasn't something we, you know, we were ready for. So it was like, oh, this is really different, but it was really neat, too. Yeah, they may have listed me as co-plotter because they they might have been just consulting with me like, you know, Val, what do you think about these three or four pages? Do you think we can do something here, or do something there? And I think they felt compelled to give me some credit for that. But I don't recall coming up with an idea, you know, uh, you know, on my own and presenting it to them and say, hey, guys, could we, could we make a story of this? And uh, I, I don't recall that happening except with the with with the one we've just, the one in question. Issue 10 there. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's that's great. Yeah, we we really we did really enjoy that one. So that's great. So, yeah. Ed, what else you got? Um, it, Kind of in that same vein, the next issue, issue 11, um, we're, we're still kind of in the early stages of being introduced to Aspen, old Dan. About a third of the way through the book, there's several consecutive pages, two or maybe three, where there is, uh, basically there are two columns on the page. On the left-hand column are some illustrations, and on the right-hand column is just paragraph after paragraph of of text. And I, I just, I wanted to ask what, what, was there anything in particular that necessitated that sudden change in the storytelling, because after that, you know, we resumed our our typical sequential art that we see in comic books. So those two pages really stood out to us when we when we encountered them while reading. Who was the writer there? Tony. Okay, that must have been Tony's idea. I I would not have remembered that, but for you gentlemen, having just brought it up now, now that you bring it up, I do remember that. I recall that. Um, it must have had something to do with the the writing. Was it a flashback? 
was was it uh, something that, that in which the the um, the uh, oh go ahead yeah yeah yeah, yeah it, it does appear to have been a flashback uh, about those those characters of of Aspen old Dan that were recently introduced yeah that's probably why it was done that way because it was there was you know the 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 regular narrative was abandoned for something like that for which i guess tony thought would would make the the flashback you know have more impact or be more meaningful or or you know project the kind of thing about that character that needed to be um yeah i i'm going to have to relook at that I, that <laughs> i remember that now that was interesting yeah and looking at it now as as we're talking it may even have been that one of those two pages was uh, focused on one of those two characters, and then the second was focused on the other. Like, you know, the the flashback had even been broken up so that it really focused on one character and then the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I wasn't sure if it was a. It seemed like it was an easier way to do like a a really big information dump about these characters rather than try to do it artistically it would have you, you guys almost would have needed another half an issue to try to pull that off so i thought maybe that's why tony did that yeah yeah it may have yeah it may have served that purpose as well yeah um also as we went through the series we noticed that there were times where uh there were some interesting coloring choices that were made uh we wanted to ask if did, did you have input in any of those choices or was that done you know, beside you, just by another person involved in the process. Um, do you know specifically which uh, issues you're talking about? You're referring to Billy. Did you did you make a note? I of think those? they. Yeah, I think it was like twelve and thirteen, which you know was interesting because on twelve, I always look at the credits of twelve, and we were talking about it before we started recording. Ed and I. It's just you know when you think about you know. Uh, creators at Marvel, especially in this era, you know, these names, you know, it's, you know, it says right at the top, Tony Isabella and Val Mayerick, writer, artist, or writer, storytellers, artist, and then Klaus Janssen was the inker, and Bill Mantlo was the colorist, too, and Len Wein editor. It's just like, the, <laughs> we just see these names that, you know, became these, you know, these huge names that were kind of just starting out. Well, I mean, Len had been around for a while at that point, but everybody else was kind of newer to the business, and it's just, wow. But yeah, that's, I think it was either the, the issue... Uh, Mantlo, uh, Bill Mantlo had colored, or maybe the the following issue where it was uh, Janice Cohen. Do you know which pa pages or panels were were colored in, in, in oddly or differently? Um, I don't have the page numbers. I just remember thinking it was. It almost seemed like it had. It, it, we were almost thinking maybe you had been working with the colorist, maybe maybe even just uh, through a, a phone call or a conversation or something, because it seemed like it was a very intentional choice by the colorist unless they were very keen on what you were looking for there so i thought oh, was there maybe some communication there or was that just 100 percent colorist choice and those choices then reflected what it was like it was it was monochromatic there was like very very bright colors what made it what made those pages stand out i i think for me it was it was a, a palette choice uh they they seem to be uh i guess you could almost say a more um, superhero -y kind of palette, if you know, brighter. If, yeah. yeah, if if that even has a a, a definition, superhero -y. But um, yeah, just a, a different, brighter, um, 
palette, it seemed there for issue uh, 12 in particular, and that was the issue that Mr. Mantlo colored. Right. Well, now that's that's interesting as well. Now, see, first of all, the coloring was totally outside of the purview of, of the of the artist. I mean, those days, as you well know, that that four color uh, coloring process was done by the printer, and there was just barely, basically basically you know, photostats of the art were, were, were colored with, you know, num basically num numbered colors that would correspond with what, what the colors the printer could then use in the, in, in the printing process. And so the actual colored photostats really looked pretty bad. They, they just, um, they, they, they weren't meant to be, to look like finished coloring at all. And then they would send those off to the, to the printer and the printer would then the, the, you know the printing process then would read th those those colors by by the number that they were and 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 you know splash those on the page so that was i mean i never liked a lot of the coloring marvel did earlier on for the horror comics especially because i thought what was going on with 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 bernie wrightson and the, and, and the uh, swamp thing there was some really nice subtle coloring mm -hmm. on there and the man thing stuff was just a lot, I thought, too garish. Um, the mummy coloring didn't really bother me that much. Um, I'm, I didn't even know that Bill Mantlow ever did any, did any coloring. Because when I met Bill, when I first moved to New York, Bill was a writer. He was already a, a pretty, had been writing for, for a, quite some time um, and was no longer doing any coloring. I didn't even know he had uh, done that. Um, Obviously he had, and um, I I couldn't even sp speak to why he made these particular choices with color at all. Um, okay. Other than maybe you know maybe he didn't maybe he wasn't a colorist maybe they saw that job and said no no no, no more man you know. Okay. <laughs> so um, I, I don't I I that doesn't ring a bell with me. I, I don't remember seeing those pages and and and. Uh, it registering with me that the color was was offbeat in some way. Not that it wasn't. I mean, I'm just saying I don't have any recollection of that. Right, right. Um, also, a, a kind of a follow up question to the the aspect of coloring. Uh, knowing that your art ahead of time is going to be in either a color magazine or just a black and white magazine, do do you approach anything about what you do differently with that in mind? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the coloring back then, some of those colorists really, I I hate to put people down. Marie Severn was a good colorist, but anybody beyond that, I, I couldn't speak for because, I mean, when I was in high school, for God's sake, and you learned the basic principle of the color wheel, you know, like what complementary <laughs> colors are. You know, you don't, right, right. you don't put purple, you don't put red trees in the background, you know, and a light blue costume in the, in the foreground, you know, they're, they're going to be fighting with each other. And, and there were so many, so many garish coloring mistakes with, with Marvel coloring as far as I could see. And I guess because they wanted, they just wanted the colors to just, you know, you know, catch the eye. And it, with, if, in a, with a superhero comic, I suppose that would be a little more appropriate, but, um, when I was based anyway, getting back to when I if I was inking my own work, I would ink much more in, intricately with a black and white book because then you know that's 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 going to show up. But with a color book, 
if they lay some, you know, highly saturated purple on top of some really some crosshatched, you know, surface that you've spent time rendering, and they just lay some dark saturated color on top of it, all the detail just disappears. It's just right. covered up. It's absorbed by that by that poor color choice. And with Marvel, you never knew when they were going to do that. So I would try to keep things as simple as possible. I didn't. I didn't at first with Fungor. I I didn't. I didn't know what I was doing with Fungo. I didn't realize that, that there was that limitation. Plus, they gave it to Vince Colotta to ink, and he, he made it even worse. So, <laughs> um, mm. um, when I was able to start working for the Warren Publications, I just had a great time. I just started really using pen and ink techniques, you know, as left and right, because I, I knew that they, they would be faithful, you know, the printing would be faithful to the originals as much as possible. And... Um, so yeah, there, there's a whole different approach to, at least for me, doing doing uh, black and white stuff as opposed to doing color. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you know Ed and I kind of agree that uh, horror it it seems like it's it's best served uh, in black and white. It just oh, kind of seems to be a little bit a little bit more raw, a little bit better, a little bit more moody, and it yes. just it just it's just a little bit better than colorized. Much, yeah. much more impactful, I think, with the oh yeah, the black yeah. and white. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, all right. Well, there was only one other thing I wanted to ask you about Val, and that was it was Ed and I. You know, we're we're just uh, on the precipice of finishing off uh, the last two issues of Supernatural Thrillers, and with fourteen, um, they I guess I don't know. Tony probably went on to a different assignment, so they brought in John Warner as the scripter, and you were still there you know, doing the artwork. Um, but then as of issue 15, you were off the book, which was the last issue of the series. So I didn't know if there was some other project that jumped out at you or what happened there that you were uh, on all these issues in a row, but then the very last issue, which was the end of a story that you weren't on that anymore. Yeah. I, I guess if I was not on the book, it was because Marvel wanted me to go somewhere else at that time in my career. I was not, um, in a position to make demands, you know, it's like, no, I'm not going to do this book. I'm going to do this book. Um, I, I just wanted to keep working. And, uh, you know, some editor somewhere probably thought that I, you know, Val would be more appropriate for this book. Let's, let's get him on there. Um, I, I, and even, even later in my career, when I had more of, of, a, of a platform to choose from, I still rarely quit a book. Um, I, I would see it through to the end unless unless the editor or the writer really felt that that uh, they didn't want me anymore or some other editor wanted me on a, on a different book, a different title. Um, it, I think that probably happened with with quite a few you know books that I've I've been on. I mean, I, I know as a result of that of of you know having a reputation for you know hopping around from title to title, I ended up doing a lot of fill-ins for Conan and fill-ins for different characters. Um, that I wouldn't necessarily have wanted to have spent a whole lot of time on, but you know, doing a one or two issue fill-in was was fun to do and was a change of pace. So I think that's probably more or less what might have happened, what might have caused that. Yeah, I wasn't sure because I, I kind of figured that's what would happen. It was just, oh, hey, let's uh, hey, there, there's this other book that you know they think you'd be better served on than what you were currently doing. It was just weird that it was the last, you know, issue of the series. And I thought, boy, did they not let him finish the last one? He just did so many in a row. I'm like, that's just crazy. Why'd they do that to him? <laughs> they may have not known it was going to be the last one. You know, Marvel, yeah. 
in those days, they have so many titles and, and books sold like crazy back then. I mean, back then, if, 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 if a monthly sale dropped down to 60,000, they canceled it. Now, there, and I don't know any book that's selling 60,000 today unless it's something, you know, some new release from Frank Miller or something, you know, nobody. Right. And so it's, you know, it, 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 things were changing rapidly at Marvel based on what they, you know, how much money they could make. And so if, if um, the book might have seemed to have been, been doing pretty well and the artist and the writer, you know, it's like you hear about this like in the movie business or TV shows, you know, TV shows, they're, they're trucking on, they're going really well. And all of a sudden they say, oh, by the way, guys, you're canceled. This, this yeah. is the last show of the season. You're like, what? <laughs> what? Mm-hmm. It's crazy. And oh, man. I think it was more or less just something like that. Gotcha, some, some gotcha. Situation like that. Yeah, that's okay. interesting. That's interesting. And I did see, too, I and this was something I hadn't known either, that, you know, you would, uh, you know, once you came to New York, you know, at some point you were working at uh, Neil Adams Studio as well. And then, you, like uh, you had mentioned Howard Chaikin earlier, too. And then eventually you and he and a couple other guys, you know, you know, kind of got your own studio going, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, those were great days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, working with Neil was extraordinary. Um, I had not had much contact with Neil over the past decade or so, but I, I miss Neil. Neil was a, a force of nature. Neil did a lot more. <laughs> Neil did a lot more for this business than people realize. I think it's going to be become more and more um, apparent now that that Neil's influence went went far and wide. Um, I, I owe Neil. I owe, I owe Neil a lot. Um, I, 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 um, I know people, I know there are certain aspects of his personality people had a problem with, and I can, I can understand why that was, but that stuff just didn't bother me. I just, um, I worked with the guy. I learned a great deal from him. I learned a, a lot from him. Um, and I, I, um, boy, I wouldn't have had it any other way. Those, those year, those year and a half, two years of continuity were great. Cool. Yeah. So do you still keep in touch with uh, some of those uh, other creators? Um, I, I do for, in two ways. If I run into somebody, an old, an old, you know, colleague at a convention, we spend time, you know, reminiscing and talking. Um, I always got along with everybody for the most part. Uh, and I have one or two people that are just friends outside of the business that I'm friends with. Um, but not that many really. Um, but uh, I, I always enjoy running into people like Larry Hama and Walt Simonson, you know, over the years. Uh, it, it's it's we always have a lot of laughs and um, there's a lot to remember. You know, we've, we've been around a while. Oh, that's fantastic. So. All right. Well, Ed, uh, do you have anything else? Uh, anything else there? I, I do have just a really, really quick question. Um, Mr. Merrick, is there any chance that you're going to be at, at Heroes Con in Charlotte this summer? I don't know, and and I have and I'm, that's a very nebulous answer. But no, I, I just really don't know because my my son, who I mentioned earlier, has been, um, you know, he he has autism and he's an adult now, and so he's going through particular changes that make it difficult for my wife to to alone be able to handle him. Mm-hmm. So yes. I try not to be away from home more than a day and a half or two days at a time. And you know, if it's a if it's a show where I've got a fly in and fly out. I mean, you, you know, you, you basically f- flying takes up one day right there, you know, and then right. two to two and a half days at the show and then flying home. And um, it really depends on, on 
where he's going to be at that time. I, I don't have any commitment to that show at this point. Um, the shows I am going to are shows that are in Texas, that are like in Houston or Austin or Houston or, or, or Dallas, and I can drive there um, okay. and, and drive back in a day, a day or two. So that's where I'm stuck now. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I did get a um, who's putting on that show. Um, it's the uh, he he runs the big comic book shop in Charlotte. Um, I oh, apologize. So the, the local show. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 usually, not it's not one of the big conglomerates that run the shows all over the country. No, Those people with the no, wizards no. and so forth. Yeah, no, 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 no. It's not a no. pop or a wizard no. or any of those. It's it's no. a it's a local show. Uh, it's usually on about uh, around Father's Day somewhere, usually a weekend before or after every year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's pretty much just comic books too, which is oh, fantastic. Yeah. Well, that, well, <laughs> that was my next comment. I, I refuse, um, unless you're going to pay me an, a, a large appearance fee. I refuse to go to any of the of the big uh, mega shows. These um, you know these multimedia extravaganzas sure. because the comic book guys get short shrift in those things. And mm -hmm. I mean, I was at a show about a year ago. And it was an immense show in, in, in an immense auditorium. And the only other comic book artist there that I even knew and, or had a reputation was Carl Potts. And I hadn't seen him in quite a few years. And everybody else, there were other artists there, but they were independents and worked for this small publisher of that. Nobody, nobody I knew. And some of them were pretty good, but that but that wasn't the point. The point was that nobody else knew who they were either. And, and I got it. I had people walking past my booth, you know, on their way to get an autograph from the woman who voiced Fred Wilma Flintstone 35 years ago, you know, and right, right. just like, oh, I, I, I don't need this. <laughs> yeah. And I sat there forever doing nothing. So I just left and I just don't want to attend any of those kinds of shows. It's an absolute waste of time. And um, and the small shows that have been done down here in Texas, um, even if they're only one day shows, I did a one day show in San Antonio about uh, two months ago, and it was excellent. They were they they just they were organized. They treated me well, and I had a lot of fans, and I did a lot of sketches, made money, and that's the kind of experience I want to have at shows from now on. Mm, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. That yeah sounds eminently fair. But having um, said that, having said that, please send me information about that show, and I and I'll I'll look into it and see what I can do. Okay. Okay. Um, the reason the the reason I asked is because um, I go every year and I, I wanted to make it a point to meet you in person. Um, so, um, and where, also, and where is this again? It's in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Charlotte. Okay. Is that, is that where you guys are? Uh, no, I am located in Southern West Virginia, about three hours north of Charlotte. Oh. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm all, I'm even further up, <laughs> further up north in Pennsylvania. <laughs> if you could please uh, email me some information regarding that show, I'd appreciate that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because well, and I'll tell you what, I my wife and I have very good friends in Houston, so I will keep my eye out for any shows that pop up anywhere near there. We can knock two birds out with one stone and go visit them, and then uh, maybe uh, see you at a show. Okay, great, great. <laughs> Um, in, in that same vein, is there anything um, that you want to plug that you have uh, coming up 
uh, publishing wise or appearances or anything like that that you want people to know about? Um, the only appearance is, is in October, early and mid-October, I'm, I'm going to be at a small show in Houston, in the Houston area, actually. It's not really in Houston. Beyond that, I don't have any shows scheduled. Um, as far as what I'm working on, I'm working, I'm, I've been doing a lot of a series of paintings and uh, I'm working on, I do advertising work um, and I'm doing a series of paintings of cowboys and dinosaurs. And um, Okay. Cool. And it, I'm, I'm thinking of doing a graphic novel of that. I don't know if you're aware of the graphic novel I did uh, about 10 years ago um, titled Dust and Blood about the, the Custer. Um, yes. Big horn. Okay, so I'm going to be working with the same writing partner on that. And we may or may not launch this thing into a, into a uh, crowdfunder. I'm not sure. And um, I've got a guy who just called me out of the clear blue about a year and a half ago. He's a guy from France. Um, his name is Eric, and he's uh, he teaches English in Paris, and so he speaks English very well. And he is dying to do a comic book before he dies. <laughs> so um, he he's not an old man, but he just says that's just what he always says. He's always, that's what he really wants to do, and he's working with a writer from Australia of all places, and he recruited me as the artist. Now where that's going to go, I have no idea. He's he's. If he does do a crowdfunder for it, it won't be until probably late this year or into the next year, into 2024. Um, it's called okay. Convoy. It, the story's called Convoy, and it's about uh, a convoy of trucks that have to make it across in in, in the America have to make it across America um because they're because of horrible things that have beset the planet and the only chance that they that for survival is for these guys to reach the east coast and and meet up with some scientists and then who can save the day um okay and that's and but again these things are very very nebulous at this point where what status they're in there they have no particular uh, stage that of development that they're in at this point it's just like so, someday they might do some crowdfunders and I will be the artist. Okay. That's all I can. Okay. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm busy with a lot of things. I'm, I'm, I'm doing some gallery. I'm, I've got a couple of galleries here um, representing some of my Western art and, um, and I, I'm, I'm having a good success with that. And I like that. So, but you know, comics, that's where, that's where I got my start, and that's for so many years that that that's formed me. And even though I don't particularly, maybe don't have the the um, enthusiasm for it I once did, I, I certainly do still have an interest in it, and I appreciate what it's given the, the you know what it's given me in terms of my career. So um, you never know. You never know. Okay. I did. I do want to say I want to. There, there's a, a fellow, a guy that I know named, named Austin Huff. He lives in Chicago, and he's been putting out some independently published books called Power Comics. And what it is, is kind of a retroactive, kind of a retro series of superheroes, you know, like the old-fashioned kinds of superheroes you saw back in the 40s and 50s, you know, the guys mm -hmm. that had weird little superpowers. And he did a series of these, and uh, he recruited a lot of guys from my generation um, – Al Milgram and Joe Rubenstein being among them, and um, I, I think I did a couple of eight-page stories for him, and uh, had a lot of fun doing that. It's, it's called Power Comics. You can find it anywhere online, um, and he's still uh, chugging along. Um, 
Joe Rubenstein inked the stuff that I did. It all looked real good. So I had fun with that. So yeah, that's it, gentlemen. I, I can't think of anything more. Okay, no, that's, well, that's cool. Yeah, that's awesome. That's yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have that all in the show notes uh, for when this goes up and everything like that as well. And, you know, your website too, which, by the way, when you uh, go to your webpage, I love that first page there where it has uh, a lot of your paintings and stuff like that. They look really, really good. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's fantastic stuff. So, yeah, I definitely, uh, like I said, I'll have that in there. And I did see uh, your uh, uh, Dustin Blood is still available online to buy anywhere, basically. Amazon and all sorts of other places that's available to buy in case anybody's interested in that as well. Oh, good. Thank you. Yep. Fantastic. So, well, uh, I think that's about it for us, Ed, right? Yep, I'm good. All right. So uh, thank you very much for doing this. Yes, uh, we, thank you. We, yeah, we really appreciate this. This was a blast. We are having so much fun and uh, enjoying your, uh, you know, uh, visual storytelling uh, immensely with uh, this uh, Supernatural Thrillers run. So this, this was a thrill. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Okay, everybody, quick break here after the interview with Val Merrick. Uh, awesome to have him on. Hope everybody enjoyed that. You know, hopefully uh, going to get some other people on in the uh, future to talk, you know, about certain comics and stuff like that as well with some co-hosts and have a good time with that. Those are always fun, but stay tuned, you know, don't go anywhere because uh, Ed and I are going to be right back in a second here with our uh, discussion of Marvel 2-in-1 number 95. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Bronze Age of Horror Comics. And I am here with my buddy, Mr. Ed Moore. How are you, Ed? Pretty good, sir. Pretty good. Glad, uh, as we're recording this, that we are not in the midst of any kind of weird weather phenomena. We've been storming here where I'm at in southern West Virginia on and off the past couple times I've tried to do this thing. And it doesn't, you know, I'm not one of those people that are paranoid about, like, you know, being online or on the phone in a storm. But it sure makes reception kind of difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're expecting some thunderstorms here tonight and overnight uh, in uh, PA. So, yeah, not looking forward to that because you never know. You know, you could lose power, you could lose Internet. And I do have yeah. another recording tonight, too. So, yeah, you know, that could make life difficult. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I hope, hope that storm doesn't mess with you too bad. Mm -hmm. I'll pray to Thor after we're done recording <laughs> here to, uh, uh, to, yeah. to help out, help a brother out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you and I, we're going to be talking about an interesting comic here tonight. So we are talking about Marvel 2-in-1, number 95, from cover dated January 1983. And people may be thinking, why are they talking about that comic? Well, this is kind of going to be a bit of a uh, wrap-up and, uh, you know, putting a nice little bow on our coverage of Encantu, the Living Mummy, right? Right. Mm hmm. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, Marvel 2 and one was, you know, uh, one of these books that Marvel had where it was, you know, basically a team up book and starring the thing and well, somebody else. And that somebody else in this uh, issue is Encantu, the living mummy. And anybody that's, you know, uh, been listening along, you and I covered all the supernatural thrillers appearances of the living mummy. We had a really good time with that. And then we were uh, privileged to have a little interview uh, sort of towards the end of when we finished up uh, with uh, the supernatural thrillers with uh, one of the creators, uh, Val Merrick. And that was a whole lot of fun, right? Yeah, that, that was, I, I really had a, a good time. That, that honestly um, is probably one of the top, uh, probably five things that I've done podcasting is being able to interview him and, and just sit there and listen to him talk about his life as, as this comic creator. So yeah, that was cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, getting to talk to pros is really awesome. The only problem for me is 
the amount of pros that are still with us from like the silver and bronze age where they came into prominence, they're starting to dwindle. So that list is getting short. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Every, every month, you know, you get, you, you can see on Twitter and, and wherever else announcements. And it's just like, it, if nothing else that I encounter and I encounter many things, um, these announcements of people that I grew up reading no longer being with us just really hits home for me how freaking old I'm getting to be. And it's, <laughs> it's just very disconcerting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there are a couple more people I want to meet uh, in my lifetime. And this obviously there's as well. Uh, at the top of the list for me is Frank Brunner. He uh, OK. Yeah. yeah, he was supposed to be out of New Jersey show. Uh, maybe 2017, 2018, and uh, I was just about ready to you know hit the buy button uh, for the tickets. And within a few days before the show, he had to cancel out. I don't remember what happened, you know, if it was a health thing or whatever. So right. he had to cancel out. So I was like, you know, I'm uh, not going to be going there because that was the biggest, you know, and primary reason I wanted to go to that show. And he hasn't come that I've seen to the East Coast since then. Maybe he may have made one appearance at uh, Terrificon up there in. Uh, Connecticut, which uh, right. by all accounts is a great show. Uh, I, I will get there someday. You know, the guy that runs it, Mitch Halleck, seems like a fantastic guy. Everybody raves about that show, kind of like Heroes Con, that I want to get to that show eventually. But I think that's the only other show he's done on the East Coast. But he must live, I think, in the Texas, in the state of Texas, because I see him do shows down there. I don't want to say regularly, but at least two or three times a year, he'll be at shows and sometimes smaller shows even in uh, Texas. And my wife and I do have friends down there, so I think I might have to go down there just to see them. Uh, well, I, if if you really want to uh, to get get the uh, what what is it? If you something, I'm trying to put together a Mohammed in the mountain kind of thing here. But yeah, <laughs> if, he, if he's not going to come to you, and you really want to do it, you you may ultimately have to to get to him in order to meet him for sure. Mm-hmm. And I haven't ever actually met. Steve Engelhart, he's another guy I really want to meet as well. I did get okay. to interview him years ago, uh, you know, online, which was fantastic. Seems like a really cool guy, but I haven't actually met him either. And I'd love to meet him because the two of those guys did my favorite Doctor Strange run of all time. Right. I was going to say those two names uh, pop up Doctor Strange in my head. So, OK. Yeah. Marvel premiere they started and then they uh, led into the, the series proper. It started in 1974 for Doctor Strange. And it's my absolute favorite era of Doctor Strange. I absolutely love it. I think those guys were were magic, you know, lightning in a bottle between those two guys. Cool. Cool. I hope you get to get to meet them both before uh, time runs out. Yeah, absolutely, man. Like I said, Frank Brunner, especially just because I have talked to Steve Englehart before. I, I still want to meet him, but uh, I was able to at least uh, talk and interview with him and stuff like that. But yeah, Frank Brunner, man, he he's the man. He For me in the 70s, he, he was like his artwork to me is like he was the guy. I think he was like really, really good, really up there. I just, yeah, it's just he he mustn't like to travel anymore. Maybe it's a health thing or whatever. But, you know, regardless, we had a blast uh, talking with Val Merrick. And uh, yeah. at this point, everybody will have had the chance to listen to that interview because I'm I'm kind of going to pair that uh, audio up with uh, this uh, review of a uh, comic you and I are going to do uh, right now. So, you know, we can kind of, like I said, just uh, put a nice bow on uh our buddy uh, in Kantu, or I guess maybe I should say we can wrap him up. Uh, I see what you did there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Bad dad jokes. Just, they just happen. <laughs> hey, after a certain point, you're allowed. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep. They just flow freely once you get to a certain age. That's it. But uh, yeah. So why don't we jump into this one here? Let's start okay. out with this cover here. So we've got 
uh, Ron Wilson and Chick Stone on this cover here. So what, what are your thoughts on this cover? Um, it, it seems there, there's, there's a lot of black on the cover that really mm-hmm. first jumps out at me. Now, you know, some people, maybe the amount of color would jump out at them because there, there is the, we've got a couple uh, Egyptian deities and they're surrounded by a nimbus of energy. So there's a lot of light there. Uh, the mummy is wrapped in white. So there's some, some uh, light coloration there, but I, just the, the, the stone temple, I guess that's kind of collapsing or maybe the pyramid behind them. Uh, the, like the whole, battle scene on the cover must be happening like at night or inside or something so i just thought that it was a lot of black that for me it just kind of distracted from what they were doing which as i said is a a couple egyptian deities there and then we have uh, a young female off to the left hand side that we know of from the story but in the middle of the cover is Nkantu and the thing uh, wrapped up fighting big giant snakes that are nicely scaled and in green. Um, very actiony cover. Um, I would imagine at this time, if you were a big fan of The Thing or Marvel 2 and 1, it, it's a very uh, provocative cover for you as a fan of that. Just mm-hmm. like I say, the first thing that jumped out at me was just the amount of black that's on the cover. I, I didn't, it was kind of distracting for me. Yeah, I almost think even if it was inside a pyramid, uh, they could have, you know, just shown the inside of a pyramid back there and kind of had it lit up a bit by that, you know, like that blast of energy, like you said, coming from behind those two Egyptian gods there. That would have worked, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. To, to like illuminate that they were inside and you could show some details of the walls of wherever they were, maybe a little door over here, you know, whatever. But I will give them credit here, uh, Ron Wilson and Chick Stone. Like you said, there's good action on the cover. Um, and this scene actually does happen in the comic as well. Mm-hmm. No, no bait and switch here. They just, uh, whoever did the coloring, they gave the, the young lady to the far left red hair and she's actually a blonde, but I, right. I can yeah. forgive that. Uh, yeah, that's okay. So <laughs> somebody didn't tell them and they just, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> they didn't get, they didn't get the memo. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I do love the logos, the Marvel two in one, the thing and the living mummy. I, I love that logo up there. It looks fantastic. And you know, the living mummy and our buddy Ben Grimm here, Benji, they're getting attacked by these giant serpents, which I love giant snakes like this. They're, they look fantastic. It's just it's really cool. <laughs> OK, I, I think maybe that's something telling about your personality or something. You, you like big snakes mm-hmm. and you. You cannot lie. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Anytime you, you take a, a creepy creature, animal, amphibian, anything like that, and you make it bigger, that's right in my wheelhouse. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, all right. Well, here we go. Let's let's dive into the, the issue proper here. So we have uh, the script by David Anthony Kraft, who, you know, he just passed away, I think, last year, if I'm not mistaken. It could have been the year before, but fairly yeah, within the past couple of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And he was a guy that I actually uh, talked to through email and he had agreed to do an interview with me and then he passed away. So that was oh, yeah, I was super, super sad about that. He was he seemed like such a nice guy. Um, I got to know him a little bit because he was real good friends with Don McGregor and he's somebody I interact with on the regular uh, on Facebook. You know, Don's on there all the time. He's, you know, very friendly, approachable, talks about stuff and him and uh, David uh, were really good friends and I was able to connect through them. And he was like, Oh yeah, sure. We could talk about stuff. And yeah, his health took a, took a bad turn. 
wasn't uh, one of Kraft's big deals like a uh, a, a magazine? Was he involved um, in one of the the um, uh, comic book like journalist magazines or something? Yes, yes, yes. That, he he did. Yeah, yeah. He did have one. I can't remember what the name of it was, but because he, when you look at his work, uh, I I try to always search for uh, the proper word for this. I I, I guess I want to say journeyman, where. He didn't have a lot of really, you know, uh, critically acclaimed longer runs on any comic, really. Um, yeah, I mostly remember him from Defenders. He did have a little decent run in the mm-hmm. Defenders, kind of like post Steve Gerber, but before uh, J.M. Dematis came on, like in that era, he kind of uh, has some really fun stories. And then I just think of him, too. He's like, you'll just say a random story in a black and white magazine from Marvel or you know, whatever. I know he did some work for DC too, but I can't remember off the top of my head what he even did for them at all. But yeah, a lot, a lot of random stories that I always had fun with his stories. Looks like Comics Interview Magazine. Oh yeah, that that's he it. Was, yep, he was involved yep. in. And I think it went for a little while, like maybe triple digits of issues, you know, a hundred, mm-hmm. some maybe 200. But that that's always what I remember kind of peripherally because until I really sit down and think about it, I can't just throw out a book that I've read from him. But then, like you said, oh, yeah, that's right. He did do Defenders. and Oh, yeah, he did that. You know, so it's mm-hmm. it, I think journeyman, but not in a in a pejorative kind of way is good. It, it it didn't seem necessarily like writing comic books is absolutely all he wanted to do. But he would keep his toes in that pond and just, you know, you would see books on occasion from him. Um, more than, uh, you know, some of these other writers that are just so prolific that we see nowadays. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Totally agree with you there. And then uh, Penciler, we have Alan Kupperberg, and uh, sadly, he has passed on as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think, it, I think yeah. it was 2015, 2016, somewhere in there, he had passed away as well. Um, yeah, so again, yeah. it's like, man, like we just talked about beforehand, you know, you see all these, uh, the, the, the list of, our, our silver and bronze age, you know, heroes, creators is, is really starting yeah. to shorten. Yeah, we, we're we getting old, Billy, I, I think is what we have to take away from that. Yeah, it's just like, oof, man. But uh, inks by John D'Agostino, who isn't someone I readily recognize there. That name doesn't jump out at me. So I'm assuming he was somebody that was just, you know, more in the background spot jobs, you know, nothing mm-hmm super uh, uh famous from him and then colors george rousseau's of course he had been around since at least the silver age he was you know, around forever today and yeah yeah he, he's one of those uh colorists that as you go through marvel books you see him everywhere maybe not all of one particular title but every month he probably had two or three books that he had colored mm-hmm. i feel like back in the day way back in the day he did some inking as well i, I feel mm-hmm. like okay maybe inks as well but i could be wrong there don't don't uh don't start firing up the pitchforks and torches. People. <laughs> don't, uh, don't add him if he's wrong. Yeah, I had a few faux pas lately. I always try to, when I uh, put the episodes out uh, on social media when they drop, I always try to say, and yes, I did make a mistake in this episode. Uh, you know, please, you know, I, we don't need to throw rocks here. I'm, I'm, I'm not a young man anymore. I do make mistakes. My memory absolutely sucks. I think the other day I had a recording where I conflated Tom Orzakowski longtime letterer, mm-hmm. uh, mostly Marvel stuff that I know of, with Tom Palmer. I, the, oh. you know, the, the, I, I, <laughs> okay. I, I somehow conflated the two of them uh, during a recording. And I, I got off the recording and thought, wait a minute, what was I saying on there? And yeah, I was like, 
Oh, you dummy. <laughs> that just sounds weird. What did I say? Yeah. <laughs> hey, their both names are Tom, and they both worked in comics. How about that? Like, give me a break. And, and they both did a lot of Marvel stuff. So, I yeah. mean, you know, we're, we're getting closer and closer together here. In the same eras, too. So, cut me some slack. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But uh, then we have letters by Diana Albers. Uh, so, you know, uh, there's, there's a, a synopsis for this comic on Marvel fandom. And I think that synopsis is longer than this actual comic. So, <laughs> yeah, and God bless whoever put it on there. I, you know, I'm not, uh, again, not throwing stones at them. God bless you. But uh, it'll be, I think it'll be a lot easier if you and I just, you know, jump right into the splash page here and say what we have to say. How Absolutely. About that? Yeah. Let, let's just <laughs> talk about the book. <laughs> yeah. So the power to live, the power to die uh, on this uh, splash page here. And I love this splash page because I love Ben Grimm. Uh, as a character, but especially during his downtime. It's not that I don't like him when he's, you know, punching, uh, sorry, Professor Allen, but punching Dr. Doom or something like that. I, I do right. like that too, but I really like him, you know, in the Baxter building and talking with the other uh, teammates, or in this case, talking with his girlfriend, Alicia Masters, right? Right. Yeah. He, he, he always, no matter who it is that has gotten a hold of him, they have always seemed to want to write him other uh, than the fact that he's this, you know, big rocky scaly dude uh, as the dude, you know, from next door or the dude you went to college with or, you know, very street level. I, I'm not necessarily a fan of that word anymore. It's it's used too much, but he's just he's the common man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's and, the every man. Yeah. And no matter who writes him. They always seem to keep that in mind at some point during their run of either The Thing or Two-in-One or uh, Fantastic Four. You know, that, that always seems to be an aspect of Ben Grimm that up until recently, as far as I can tell, uh, never seemed to get lost in that character. And, and I've always liked that about The Thing in particular. Yeah, I don't ever try to talk too uh, deeply about how a character was and how they are now just simply because I don't read current. So I don't know what is going on with mm -hmm. characters nowadays. So I just, like you said, he's, he's like, you know, he was created by Jack Kirby and he's like, he is like basically the everyman or the, the Jack Kirby of the fantastic four. I, and, and I wonder if that's kind of what Kirby had in mind when he was setting up Ben Grimm and he put, mm -hmm. if not a lot of himself, then a lot of his experience in life in Ben Grimm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I, I absolutely think so. Yep, I think he did for sure. And yeah, this opening scene is interesting. We have a uh, we're, we're looking in on Alicia's uh, like uh, loft apartment here, or, and she has I love it. She has a sculpture of Ben Grimm behind her, and uh, I do think it's interesting that there's one of Johnny Storm as well. Um, <laughs> well, you know, it's yeah. <laughs> but uh, she uh, they just got a package delivered. And I can't remember his name, but what is the mailman's name? Um, oh, gosh. Because oh. it doesn't even well, credit him on, like, GCD here, oh. the Grand Comics database. But he's there, and he's at the door, and Ben is shutting the door in his face because he goes, hey, what about my tip? And he goes, here's your tip. Stay off of Yancey Street, shorty, and y'all and y'all never get clobbered. <laughs> so, <laughs> There you go. Not not a bad tip, but I don't think it was the tip that uh, the mailman was after. No, I was just like, geez, like because I thought they had a, a pretty, you know, a decent relationship, but uh, apparently not. <laughs> I was like, yeah. wow. 
Willie Lumpkin. Willie? Yes, yeah. Willie Lumpkin. Okay. Uh, yeah, basically, it's a, a Stanley is a mailman. <laughs> basically. Yeah, yeah, basically, that's what. It is. Yeah. <laughs> Even before he made that appearance in one of the movies as that guy, it it, it basically was him. But yeah, Alicia got a package delivered to her here, and uh, Ben refers to it as some kind of nutty box wrapped up tighter than a drum. An envelope on the outside says the package is to be. I like how it says to be opened, not to be open, mm, to right. be open uh-huh. by Alicia Masters only. Maybe you better let me handle it, babe. I got me a mighty peculiar feeling about this. And I will give this to Ben, uh, although he, you know, it, it says some things there that uh, wouldn't float with uh, a lot of uh, females in 2023. His intuition is right here, is it not? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know what it is that tipped him off, but yeah, he automatically is like, yeah, this doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. And he's uh, reading the note to her and it says, see, I was right. Read the letter to me, Ben, while I open the package. And he says, all right, Alicia, but my nose tells me something's rotten here. And he says, Mrs. I'm sorry, Ms. Masters, open the box and become the first in an all new race of all powerful Egyptian gods. And he's like, shut the box, Alicia. I mean, now. <laughs> yeah, quite, quite the note to just attach to a box and, and say, you know, read me first. And this is what it says. That's yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what happens here to poor Alicia? So she opened the box and either set it on, on a stool that she has there, or she opened it sitting on the stool. But the next panel is the box on the stool open. You see the flaps there to either side. And then this nimbus of energy seems to be emanating from the box and surrounding her, which really seems to affect her in some way in the panel. We're, we're not 100% sure. But it also is that the energy is enough that it is like uh, going over towards Ben Grimm, who's like on the other side. Uh, Alicia reaches into the box, and, and I, I like how they included like some kind of packaging, a straw or hay, you know, or something mm-hmm. like that. But she reaches in and she gets this really, uh, in my mind, weird-looking helmet. Uh, it's very conical. Uh, it's it's actually it's basically if you took a, a a cone and you sealed the top and then down at the other end you cut a slot in the shape of like so your face can look out the cone and that's all it is it's just this big cone with this cutout and <laughs> she touches it and immediately she says I- I'm being called summoned to a higher duty a duty I cannot ignore which is just like wow that's that's pretty. Pretty potent, she said. I am the chosen. I must assume my rightful place in the new pantheon as the bride of Nephris. And what she's done is she's been compelled by the power of the helmet to pull it out of the box and put it on her head. And then when mm-hmm. she puts it on her head, we we get a uh, um, if if I can use this analogy, we we get kind of a Doctor Fate moment where there's this mm. entity apparently that's in the helmet that when Alicia puts the helmet on. The entity in the helmet takes over her body as well. And so now she is possessed by uh, something. Well, she said she feels uh, that she will be the bride of Nephris. And so until a little mm-hmm. bit later on in the story, we just go with that. She she must have been taken over by Nephris, we'll, we'll assume. Yeah, and I mean, if anyone has been listening along to you and I with the supernatural thrillers, you know, the name Nephris has uh, mm-hmm. been a big part of that. Right, yeah, yeah, it's definitely one that we have heard before, for sure. Mm-hmm, and, yeah, I do find it interesting, too, that she says, I'm being summoned, you know, to a higher duty, a duty I cannot ignore. And I thought to myself, 
I ignore duties or like around the house all the time. Exactly. It, it, yeah, it's I, real I, easy. I, <laughs> you just you just look the other way. <laughs> it's not as hard as you make it out to be. I don't think. No, no. When my wife's like, "Yo, can you do this?" I'm like, "Yeah, yeah. I got. I'm real busy right now. I got something else to do." Like, yeah. I, <laughs> as you as you put on your helmet and <laughs> let it take you away. <laughs> and I do. There is a really specific name for that headdress thing. I can't remember the name of it. I actually just started watching on YouTube the other day. It's like a two hour long, at least um, one of these like documentary type things where there are some visuals uh, that are like computer generated. And then also some that are, you know, uh, actual photographs and stuff like that of uh, basically the history of Egypt, you know, up until obviously not current times, but you right. know, when, 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 you know, their, their last dynasty or whatever fell possibly something like that. Okay. There were different uh, rulers uh, most of the male, but I will say there was at least one, if not two of female ones. Uh, and they had these different colored headdresses and the colors uh, signified which tribe you were from. Oh, okay. well, I guess that makes sense. Okay, cool. Yeah, it was really neat. I'll even send you a link to it. You, I think you'd enjoy it, but uh, okay. I do like how, you know, Ben's like, Hey, you know, <clears throat> I'm going to hold still. I'll knock it off. Meaning the headdress before. And she says, witless infidel, you attempt blasphemy. For that, you should die. And she turns and looks at him, and this uh, energy blast comes out of a, a stone that's on the, uh, the front of the headdress and blasts him, like, through the wall. And I love the uh, sound effect there, by the way, uh, when he goes through the wall. The dacum. Uh-huh. And that was something be before he passed, you know, I had uh, talked about with uh, David Anthony Kraft that uh, a lot of times in comics he wrote, there would be a sound effect that had his initials in it. <laughs> oh, you're right. I didn't. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a time where like once a week he'd be like, oh, here I am again in a comic. And he'd post this picture of the, the you know, his uh, initials, David Anthony Kraft, Dak, uh, in a comic. Uh, it's cool. fantastic. Okay. So, so do you think that he made a point to tell his artist to do that at some point? That that would be the only way that it would it would happen that frequently, right? If he said something. Yeah, I'm assuming he said to the artist or the letterer, you know, hey, can you you know slide that in there? And they're right, like, okay. You know, big smirk on their face. Sure, no problem. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Obviously, he's the writer, not the artist. So the the the, the script left his hands, and somebody else did all this. So mm -hmm. right. it's not yeah, like and, he could have done it. Right, and and given the Marvel method, we don't necessarily always know how much of the the story that the writer dictated, mm -hmm. or how much of the story the artist. Uh, which is the whole gist of the Lee Kirby feud that goes on. It's like, well, you know, who actually created more of the story that we see? Yeah. And Alicia, she's really, uh, really been, you know, taken over by this thing. She's, she's really like, she doesn't even care about Ben or what he has to say. Right. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't think from what we see here, it's really Alicia anymore. It's whatever yeah. the entity was Nephris, I guess in, in the helmet at this point. Yeah, he says, I got to save Alicia. And she says, the redemption you suggest is impossible. The choice was made. The crown donned. There can be no return. Forget the female. She no longer exists. If you again interfere in the affairs of immortals, you will die. So I thought, geez, like, this is going to be one of those deals where you can't take it off or something bad's going to happen. That's what I was thinking right out of the Yeah, that, that's what I thought, too. It's like, oh, it's, yeah, it's like you said, it's one of those cases where they don't take over. They, like erase the other person and they just use the body so if that invading personality is gone you just have an empty body left 
Mm-hmm. And there's like a, a Mission Impossible, uh, uh, you know, a trope here where, you know, this this is going to blow up in 10 seconds. So he goes back to the, <laughs> the box and tries to get the note and it turns to uh, ash. So I'm like, whoa, that's that's pretty cool. There, there you go. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> you, now, now that now that you said that, I can I can hear the theme from Mission Impossible <laughs> in my head. <laughs> yep. Oh, so Ben, uh, he's like, you know, he, he's like, uh, you know, we're in trouble here. Alicia's in trouble. And he's like. You know, trying to figure out what he needs to do to find information. And he's like, wait a minute. It's a long shot, but I got to try it. And he's like, I'll just go to the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, And uh, I've actually been there. It's really cool. Um, And cool. He yeah, he he shows up there and he goes, now, where's this expert I called? So I guess he called ahead. And I did send you a picture through um, DM on Mm -hmm. Twitter of a certain actress, because this uh, this woman here, uh, Lillian, uh, Lillian. Templeworth, which is a heck of a name, uh, sounds like royalty or somebody with some money. Uh, she yeah, works really. at the museum here, and she worked with another guy. She was kind of his assistant. We'll, we'll get to him in a minute, but she, her face, her visual just really jumped out at me, and I thought, oh, I think it's this certain actress from years ago, and I sent you a picture of an actress, and it was you know later in her career in life, um, uh, certainly not in her heyday, but um, it, it really reminded me of, you know, an, an older Greta Garbo here. There, there, there could be a, a connection there. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's not just a, uh, a coincidental thing. Uh, the, the image at the, at the, the panel at the top of the page where she first is introduced, she's a little too far away to see, mm-hmm. but the, the side view in that next one, uh, if you actually put it up to the photograph you sent, it's like, well, I, yeah, I can see her. Uh, being that at least the uh, the start of this character that that ended up going on page here. So it, it could be, um, I you know, I don't know. I could see craft uh, sending a note. Hey, could you make this woman look like Greta Garbo? Or, you know, I mean, there, there's any number of ways that the artist could have ended up doing that specifically more than just a coincidental. Oh, yeah, she looks like, you know, because I, I without doing the research, I can't think that at the time the comic was made Greta Garbo was necessarily a big name in the news so no. she wouldn't have been front of mind uh, because of the nature of pop culture at the time so that would have been a really specific effort to to do that kind of resemblance I think yeah I'm kind of always wondering like when uh, Alan Kupperberg uh, drew this you know he was what age and was she somebody that was kind of in the limelight when he was growing up? That would have been a big name, and it stuck out in his head, and he kind of used her as a little right. photo reference here because she's just a, a basically a one-off character. It's not like she's, you know, we're talking about Ben Grimm. Like, he could have a little fun here and do whatever he wanted with this character. Right, and maybe the the night, you know, that he got to this particular panel, maybe he had a movie on in the background or something like yeah. that. And he's like, uh, I need a model. Oh, here on the TV, I just noticed with the sound off. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. We hear stories when, when we do interviews mm-hmm. of, of artists doing stuff like that all the time. Uh, some uh, inspiration at the very moment they get to a particular aspect of the story. And it's like, well, uh, you know, no, it wasn't planned. I just needed something to use. And I used that as the model because it was, you know, whatever, where I was at, what was on TV, you know, whatever was going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lillian here, uh, I mean, Ben is a pretty gruff, rough character himself, but she's going to give Ben a run for his money here. She says to him, good heavens, you are more ponderously bestial than I had imagined. I am Lillian Templeworth, Egyptologist and curator of the division of this museum. 
keep your distance from the displays. They are exceedingly rare and extremely fragile. I'm like, wow, okay, rolling out the red carpet for old Ben. Uh, yeah, that, that's a little too snooty for me. Uh, <laughs> he gives it right back to her. Look, lady, we can socialize all you want later. But right now, we got to rescue my girl before she becomes some kind of bride of Nephris. And she goes, the what? He goes, the bride of Nephris. And she kind of turns and briskly walks away. And he says, hey, <laughs> hey, lady, stop. I didn't mean to insult you. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, you could actually, you could almost imagine, um, although I guess not because of the way everything is, is set up here in the in the panels, but that, that she rushed past him. But it looked like what she did is she came down from an upper portion of the museum down to the level where Ben was. And then when he said that, she turned around and went back the way she had come. So uh, I, I would have thought that the, the brusqueness would have been better served if like after he said that she had rushed past him on down the hallway. Mm -hmm. And she was going down back down the hallway for a specific reason, not to run away from Ben, even though that's what he thinks is going on. And she's like, Mr. Graham, wait. And he goes, what? You're going to help me after all? And she says, of course, there was never any doubt about that. We Templeworths have a tradition of assisting anyone in need, even disruptive types such as so-called superheroes. It's like, wow. Yeah, she's, she's hitting below the belt a little bit here. She goes, tell me, have you seen this headdress before? And he goes, that's the hat Alicia's wearing. And she goes, that hat was stolen from our museum by this man. And Grimm has the picture of him. He goes, so what? And he goes, I fear that your Alicia may be in grave danger. That man is Gamal Hassan. Until very recently, he was the museum's chief curator for this division. And I was his assistant. He is brilliant, the foremost expert in the field. And he is mad. And, you know, she basically explains to him, like, yeah, Alicia's in some trouble here because uh, I think uh, you don't understand the forces you're dealing with here. And uh, we, we need to get to uh, basically go find Alicia. You know, if that means uh, getting to uh, Egypt, then uh, that's what we must do here. And uh, then the scene switches on uh, page seven there to uh, a poor cop. And he's watching uh, <laughs> a, a quite a quite a sight here, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. The, the beat cops in New York City in the in the 80s, 70s and 80s. Man, they had it rough in the Marvel Universe. Those those poor guys, they're just out typically trying to do their job and. Ultimately, they are the first to encounter the bad guys and always bear the, the rather negative brunt of that meeting. So I, I kind of feel sorry for, I don't know, Officer O'Leary here or, you know, whatever his name would have been. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, he's just walking his beat here on the wharf, you know, and he, he sees this strange, glowy lady. I'm, I, I can just imagine myself in that. You know, it's like. Mm -hmm. A glowy lady, you know, what in the world is going on? And he, he's thinking to himself, it, actually, it's pretty uh, toned down. He's thinking a woman standing on a deserted pier, question mark. But we see the image of this woman with this weird thing on her head, you know, from, mm -hmm. from our point of view, with this nimbus of energy around her walking towards the end of a pier. So it's like, you know, what is she weird freaking out going to commit suicide and walk off the edge or, you know, what's going on? Poor beat cop. This is out of his realm of, of expertise. He doesn't know what to do here. Yeah, when I think of like, you know, uh, goofy cops, I always think of the guy from the Batman 66 television show. I can't oh. remember his name. Chief, yeah. Chief o something. Oh, O'Hara? Was it Chief O'Hara? Oh, yeah. O'Hara. I think it was Chief O'Hara. Okay, <laughs> I yeah. I was just thinking of him. <laughs> so, but... Some kind of ethnic-y sounding name, I always thought, yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, oh, yeah. Um, and I, I look now uh, in the first panel on the page. Can you make out the name of the ship? 
Oh boy, that's really small writing there. Okay, it is SS Timely. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Okay, there we go. <laughs> yeah, I would have to take a picture of that and then expand it to be able okay. to read that. Ooh, yeah. I mean, now that you say it, I can see it, but man, wow. I didn't notice that on my first pass as I'm sitting here looking at this. I'm like, what is that? Timely. Oh, okay. I see mm -hmm. I see what you're doing. <laughs> so, yeah, she's she's waiting for someone. She's waiting for a pickup here, and she's, you know, uh, waiting and waiting. And uh, there's a panel where she has her arms out, and it looks like a bunch of, like, almost like bowling pins around her with this this energy. And then uh, a, a big banana boat comes to pick her up here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Be because he's coming to tally uh, the bananas. So mm -hmm. he's got He's got something on the back of the boat there. I'm not sure what that is. There's, there's well, something on the back of the boat there. Yeah, th those are the, the stacks of bananas. <laughs> yeah, banana boxes. Yeah, I don't know what they are. It's yeah. just some <laughs> random thing to put there uh, to make it look not as empty, I guess. But it picks her up and takes off. Uh, with the, uh, a guy aboard there, but we don't see who he really is yet. But the cop's just standing there and he goes, Mabel was right. This job's finally getting to me. <laughs> see, it, poor dude. You know, he's like, look, I just I want to get in my eight or ten hours and, and just go home. And, and he sees this. Now, fortunately, he didn't suffer for it. So that that's cool. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, yeah. he's, he's going to go home. And I'm sure once he gets home, he's going to have a hard decision to make, whether he tells Mabel about what he saw or just keeps it to himself and forgets about it. Yeah, and, and this is why uh, law enforcement is not for me. Uh, having to deal with, you know, in, in New York City, the, the murders, muggers, rapists, yeah, that's bad enough. Now you got to deal with this crap. I, I would— uh, I, I don't have the right temperament, and it this this would just be like, no, I, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, meanwhile, uh, I guess uh, Lillian was telling Ben about, you know, kind of where in Egypt that uh, she thinks all these uh, shenanigans are going to go down. So he's like, you know, basically, let's go. And I love page eight. Page eight, basically, we get supernatural thrillers five. Uh, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, and fourteen, and fifteen in one page. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> six, six panels, two horizontal, and then two regular square kind of panels. Uh, we get the uh, our buddy in Kanto. He's he's just hanging out out in the desert watching the the moon uh, set. He's just hanging out. Yep. Yeah. Now I will say, unfortunately, uh, when we get down to the the last panel, there, I, I was kind of disappointed that we saw both of his eyes. Mm hmm. Yeah, that was a little bit of a I guess they didn't go back and look at, uh, you know, the work Val Merrick and some of the other artists had been doing because, yeah, one of his eyes was either always like covered, concealed, looked like it was either missing. Every once in a while, it would be red. Um, yep. But, yeah, there's definitely something with one of his eyes. It always made him look more menacing, I thought, mm -hmm. whereas here, you know, looking at the panel, he looks almost like a, a, a car cartoony face wrapped in in wrappings you know because you can see both of his eyes and the the one little slit or whatever it is here in the wrappings to represent where his mouth is and i'm like he doesn't look scary at all i mean he's a mummy now i guess that would be scary all by itself but as far mm -hmm. as how he looks it's like uh you you did you you made him look too too soft you know i'm, I'm not scared or intimidated by him or anything like that yeah, the, the other panels look fine. Like you said, the very bottom one, though, he just this looks like a regular dude wrapped up. So, yeah, not not very scary. It's it's this is more of a, a like the way a superhero artist would draw a horror yes. character. Yes, not a horror artist. Yeah, that that's that's very, very well put. Yeah. And then he's uh, kind of interrupted from his uh, revelry here and he sees there's a uh, procession coming through the desert here and it has 
you know, what looks like to be something you would have seen back in ancient Egyptian times, right? Right. Yeah. He he says uh, it's something he has not seen, although he was like unconscious for most of this time period. But he says mm-hmm. he has not seen it's like in over 30 centuries. And I as soon as I read that, I'm like, uh, let's see, 30 times 100 is in 3000. Oh, OK. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's uh, watching. And that is a great panel where he's sitting there watching this procession. And there's the moon and some clouds. I really like that panel. It's really cool. And we see uh, uh, Alicia here. Still possessed, and now she has a... I can't remember what you call that symbol. It's an ankh. An ankh? Okay, yeah. Yes. And she's uh, sitting to the right of the high priest, Nephris, which basically is this... uh, uh, What was his name? Gamal Hassan guy, who has a headdress on as well, but he doesn't seem to be possessed by any kind of power uh, yet, uh, we'll say. Uh, So uh, they're, they're sitting there together, and she almost seems like she's, you know, under his sway, and he's talking about, you know, uh, trying to find the secret of immortality. And, of course, that's where, you know, you can kind of see that our buddy uh, Nkantu and his whole backstory uh, comes into play when you want to talk about finding immortality out in the uh, out in the Egyptian desert, right? True. Yeah. Uh, apparently, that is the only way uh, from ancient Egypt that you can be immortal is to be a, a well, to be a mummy or to inhabit a headdress. I, I guess that would kind of be <laughs> immortal as well. <laughs> yeah. So. so what about this next page here, page 10? So they, the, the procession gets to the part in the desert here where they think they're going to find these uh, this way to make him uh, immortal. And as he uh, puts it, uh, become a god. And it, there's a bunch of like, you know, slave type people here and they're bowing and this and that. And then all of a sudden uh, this uh, Gamal guy says, but first you must use your mystic crown to transport our slaves away. None may witness that which what follows. And she says, oh, I obey my Lord. And at first I thought she like disintegrated them, but I guess she just transported them somewhere else. Right. I wouldn't be surprised if she just juiced them and, and killed them all. Yeah, because then there's just like a little burning pile of crap that, there in that next panel. Exactly. And and this entity, you know, when it was talking to Ben Grimm, it, it didn't seem to revere necessarily life. Uh, you know, that that's not the takeaway, I thought, from the personality of the of the entity. So why not? You know, we've used these slaves. We don't need them anymore. Poof. Just zap them out of existence. Mm-hmm. And then we get a meanwhile and we catch up with Lillian and Ben. Now, <laughs> You know, <laughs> this is fantastic. So she basically says to him, hey, you know, you, you have to, uh, you know, assimilate here a little bit so we don't uh, attract too much attention. And he says, sorry, sister, but there ain't no way you're getting me wrapped up in that overgrown nightshirt. <laughs> she's she's trying to get him to kind of dress like the locals, you know, uh, over there in that culture. And uh, I, I'm not sure what you call that. I want to say a burqa, but I don't think it is a burqa. I, I, it, it's, it's like a, a hooded robe in, mm-hmm. in, in plain Ed English, you know, I, yeah, I'm sure it probably has a specific, uh, name, but now it, to me, interesting was, you know, she's concerned about Ben drawing attention. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, having read the rest of the story up to this point, I, I understand that the attention is let the people we're looking for know that we're here. You know, that's not what mm-hmm. we want to do, but as far as attention, um, two, four, six, eight, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18. There's probably between 20 and 25 people in this marketplace. Maybe one or two are looking at Ben at all. Nobody else is paying any attention to him. So immediately I'm like, uh, he's not drawing any attention anyways. So, you know, what's your beef? 
And I feel like they were just trying to use Ben as, you know, uh, uh, for a moment of comedy here, simply because Lillian is dressed in what I would refer to as just a, a safari outfit. Yes. She's, why Why she's, can't Ben just wear one of them? She's, she's wearing very much your typical imperial come to Egypt uh, safari. Yeah. The, the pith helmet, uh, short sleeve shirt, shorts. Uh, tall socks and shoes and yeah she's she's very stereotypical of how we were made to see the white man or the european in a desert situation so yeah mm-hmm. and he goes all right you made your point already and she starts putting ah. it on him and he goes i just hope the yancey streeters never hear about this that's right <laughs> they'll, they'll make fun of him wearing a dress you know that's that's where that would go Mm-hmm. And then this bottom panel I find completely hilarious because not only uh, is she still kind of making these mean faces at Ben and scolding him, you know, about his, you know, discomforts. Um, he goes, I can take discomfort, sister, but I don't like uh, risking my ever-loving blue-eyed dignity. So he's losing his dignity for some reason by dressing up uh, in the local garb. But the two fa- the two camels that they are about to, like, purchase yes. or rent— what is up with the faces on these I, two camels? I don't know, but yeah, it looks like some kind of mashup between like a, a human face and a camel face, or yeah, <laughs> and yeah, and the faces they're making—it's almost like they know something that Ben and Lillian don't, or like you know, they just like you know, like they're like the guy there that's their handler is going to just like overcharge them and like put them through the ringer. Yeah, it, it looks like that that look away you know that they they use in like movies or tvs when yeah the the, you know that the character knows and to signify that they kind of look away or they'll glance away at a at a particular moment or something that seems to be what the camels are doing Mm -hmm. and she does start uh you know uh, haggling with this guy about what the the price is going to be but uh, all of a sudden she did mention earlier lillian by the way on that page that like hey you need to be in disguise because she thinks uh, our buddy Gamal Hassan will have spies on the lookout for him, which I thought was interesting. So I thought, oh, he did his homework. You know, if he was going to get Alicia, you know, I guess he knows, you know, it's kind of known in the New York area, at least, I guess, that she's the, the girlfriend of the thing. And that could bring him in the Fantastic Four, right? Well, I guess so. Yeah, they they must be big enough, I guess, superheroes that their their pictures have been in the news around the world or whatever. Yeah, so the the big orange rocky guy would kind of be known mm-hmm. and you know there is a guy and he says uh he is here abdul uh warn the others go quickly and this little kid goes running and you know thus seconds later there's uh, maybe like uh, almost a dozen or half a dozen guys with swords it's yeah. like almost like an indiana jones moment here i feel like they were riffing on that right yeah it's, it's like they were all part of the crowd but now they expose that actually they're the 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 guardians of of whatever yeah Mm-hmm. And he, uh, Ben just says, oh, rats. And here I thought I was going to get through the, through the, this without tearing this swanky new bed sheet. And he goes, stand back, sister. And he kind of pushes her out of the way, even though she has a knife in her hand. And it looks like the knife is almost going to go into the camel's throat. And he says, yeah, it looks like she's going to kill the camel. Yeah. She says, please, Grim, my name is Lil. Oh, dear. And she falls over and the knife that she had pulled out, uh, cuts the, uh, tether that was holding the camels, uh, there. And I'm thinking, okay, but uh, the camels are still there like 10 seconds later after Ben puts yeah, a beating they, on these guys. They end up not really going anywhere. Um, something I also noticed about the camels. Uh, would you really tether them to a stake pounded into the ground? 
Yeah, I don't. I thought they were like kind of kind of chill animals that like if you have like camels in your like if that's your business you rent sell whatever lease <laughs> lease payment you know camels that they're they're usually pretty chill that you know just give throw a bucket of water or some food in front of them and they'll just stay there for hours on end they don't even think about running away. Yeah, I, you know, just stand there holding the 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 rope. I, I thought would would be all that he would need to do, but you know mm-hmm. they have these guys staked like the the stakes you use to, to hold up the, uh, the circus tents or something like that. I, I thought, well, that's, that's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. And they, they eventually, you know, get the upper hand and the, 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 the bad guys, you know, uh, leave, you know, they, they get out of town here. So uh, then it's like, okay, let's jump on the camels here and uh, head out into the desert. And uh, out in the desert, uh, our buddy uh, uh, Gamal is here with Alicia and he says, I am being called. Uh, or uh, she says, I'm being called. The power within is impatient to be free. And she goes inside. And again, she's just bathed in this energy. And by the way, I will say, Alan Kupperberg, man, he uh, he draws him a, a sexy Alicia here. She's uh, well, She ain't wearing much. Somewhere on this trip, she lost all of her clothes. Yeah, I, I noticed that back when, when uh, she got out of the uh, procession there at the, uh, the beginning of the um, – Ruins scene there. I thought, mm-hmm. where'd all her clothes go in, in this journey from New York to Egypt? I, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the, the cover reflects at this point how she's dressed. But yeah, up until then, she was just like fully clothed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was just everyday New Yorker dress. That's, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he says, find the awesome spirit gem of Nephris. And then he goes booking out of there and says, while you search, I shall ensure that you are not disturbed. At a glance, this looks like an innocuous archaeological dig. But if anyone expresses more than idle curiosity, and he's got this like, <laughs> I'm not sure how he pulled this off. They're in the middle of the desert. So what does he have, a generator out there to I'd, work all this equipment? Yeah, I don't know how that would work. Uh, maybe, maybe um, uh, what is it, Casada said, uh, magic, <laughs> comic book magic. <laughs> it, it must be because he has like a security system. Like maybe ADT or somebody came out to the desert to. <laughs> That's funny. You know, back up. on this one panel, I think I did see a sign. That, no, <laughs> in, his, in his front yard here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he's got you know view screens and security, and these two they look like giant laser cannons out here in the desert. Yeah, and not only that, but they they they're hidden. That they're in a an underground holding thing that like pops mm-hmm. up and they rise up out of it. So it's not like, you know, it'd be one thing to just find a place and, and build a couple cannons to, to use, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and it's funny that I'm saying that so nonchalantly, <laughs> but, but no, this is a, a hidden underground thing that rises whenever he wants to use them. So it's, you know, that's gotta be like two or three times the amount of, of money and effort of just setting them out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. And you that they, it, it's like a it's like a you know cobra from like GI Joe. Kind yes, of that's <laughs> that's exactly what it is. <laughs> it's wild. Well, he blasts the crap out of Alicia and uh, Ben here, like just barely missing them, and that's enough for the camels to just go bananas here and kick them off and probably just run away. And uh, another blast comes in, and Ben is able to get in front of Lillian here and uh, absorb the blast. And he's like, "Yeah, I kind of figured it wasn't a calling card from the Tooth Fairy." And then he says, dag, nab it, as he gets blasted, and it blasts his, uh, you know, air quotes, bed sheet off of him. <laughs> well, not only that, but it, it breaks off some of his hide. 
too, mm-hmm. and, and we see it floating around here. Whatever you want to <laughs> call whatever he's made of, part of his epidermis or what? Yeah, so it's like, ooh, that was a big blast because it, it knocked off pieces of of the thing. Yeah, and she says, "What's wrong, Mister Grimm? Are you hurt?" And he goes, "It ain't me. It's my duds. I was getting to like them." <laughs> yeah. So yeah. He, he he's he's upset. His uh his uh, local garb has been uh, taken out, but. Uh, Gamal says they survived. However, my second line of defense shall. And he's like, that sound. And oh, yeah, they're supposed to be, you know, a partner for Ben. And it's not supposed to be Lillian in this comic. It's supposed to be in Kantu, right? Yep. We we finally see him make a, a reappearance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he busts into the uh, the security tent here and says, you know, Nephris, make me a man, Nephris, or die. And uh, Gamal here, you know, for a guy that uh, believes in all this uh let's just say for lack of a better term, superstition and supernatural stuff. He, he gets pretty scared when he sees the mummy here, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. I guess, uh, I, I guess, which is interesting where he's at and what he's doing. I guess he never expected to see an actual mummy, even though, you know, he's dealing with these, uh, uh, mythological mystical entities that are inhabiting headdresses and he's dressed like a, an ancestral Egypt. I mean, Everything about this is like, well, duh, you know, as mm-hmm. far as seeing a mummy. But, yeah, he's he's much taken aback by seeing one. And he does mention, by the way, too, you know, we're, we're reading the, ca- the, 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 the boxes here, the, the word bubbles, obviously in English. But uh, Gamal does say a mummy and it speaks the tongue of ancient Egypt. So it's still speaking in uh, Egyptian. Yeah, it is. It, the, the word balloon is like outlined a little differently uh, mm-hmm. you know you would think perhaps that's just like something about his voice maybe you know or something like that but yeah uh gamal clues us in that no it's like that because it's a completely different language and gamal doesn't believe it he thinks it's just shenanigans that uh lillian has uh, <laughs> somehow uh put this together and he's like enough i shall solve the mystery after i attain the power and he goes back in and uh, alicia has found this uh this, it looks like a giant diamond, actually. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and he goes, uh, Alicia, my mindless queen, have you found it? And she goes, yes. It's almost like she's hypnotized. And he says, let Gamal Hassan now claim his legacy. Let Gamal Hassan now become a god. And he takes this diamond and, like, it's almost like he kind of slaps it up against his chest. On his chest. Here, his chest. It, <laughs> yeah. And it kind of, like, you know, it sinks into him, like, a little bit, like, half of it. And then the other half is still outwardly visible, right? Yeah, kind of like uh, what? What is the werewolf that did that? Uh, John oh, Jameson. Oh yeah, with yeah. The, he with had the that, red, that the yeah, rock. with the red ruby. Yeah, yeah. Moon gem. Yep. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Moon. Yeah. yeah. That's. I think that was what he called him, or what he was called. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you know Ben and Lillian they go into the security tent, and Lillian's packing heat and has a knife. She is. She is around. armed. Yeah, she's ready to go, man. Got a pistol in one hand and a. Almost a short sword in that other hand. That's bigger than just a dagger. Yeah, she's got like a a, a Rambo kind of knife. Right? Yes, the, yeah, the, big... the Australian guy. What was his yeah. name? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like she has got a pistol too. And then the mummy comes out, and she says, "Merciful heavens!" And Ben says, "Out of the way, Ms. Lil. Handling guys like him is my specialty." But uh, before they can even, you know, have the. Uh, uh, we were it's the, the misunderstood uh, heroes. Let's fight first before right. that can even happen. Yeah. We get another da coom here, uh, and Nephris lives. Yeah, this is kind of reminiscent of the uh, front page, the mm-hmm. cover. So yeah, yeah, we they're they're emerging 
uh, our two Egyptian uh, de demi deities, or, or whatever you want to classify them as, and they're they're coming out of. I guess we we didn't necessarily see. I don't know that it was a pyramid that they went into from the outside. Now the inside, it looks like a pyramid with all the stacked blocks of of rock, mm -hmm. you know, and all that stuff. But whatever they're in. They, they use their energy rather than just walking out the door, which would have been kind of simple. Uh, they, they much more dramatically like blast out the side of whatever they're in. And so the mummy is thrown and falls away on one side. Uh, ben Grimm and Lillian fall away on the other side. And now what caught my attention was not necessarily having put it together with what we saw previously, but these huge conduits or cables or whatever i'm like well if this is an ancient pyramid what is, what is this but then like you pointed out he's got this high-tech security system with this uh cobra weapons and everything i'm like oh, okay well it makes sense i guess that that would be somewhere around there mm -hmm. the black market that's where he got all this stuff I, I, <laughs> wherever I cobra gets it, yeah wherever yeah. cobra gets it he shops there too <laughs> well maybe he bought it from them yeah it's, oh yeah. it could be yeah it could be but you know, he, he He's now been completely taken over by Nephris, this uh, Gamal guy. It's no longer Gamal. This is now Nephris controlling this body, and he says he rules this body, and just as he shall rule the world. And uh, Ben doesn't take kindly to that, so he, he throws a giant rock at him and hits him, but it, it doesn't really do much, right? No, no, it doesn't seem to. Uh, it does knock him closer to the mummy, though. Mm -hmm, yeah, and the mummy and him have some words here, which is kind of hilarious. The mummy's like, Nephris, it's, it truly is you. And he goes, and Kantu, my old foe, I dared not dream of a savoring such a triumph. Free me from my living prison, he says to him. And he goes, free you? Never. You shall be an example of those who arouse my wrath. And he just slaps the mummy away like he's nothing. I'm like, uh-oh, this isn't going to go good. Uh, something just occurred to me. This energy that is coming off the Nephris Gamal uh, amalgam here, mm -hmm. uh, that very much looks like a Ditko energy. Kind of does, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. now, it reminds me of bowling it, pins. Yeah, oh yeah, it, it certainly looks like bowling <laughs> pins. Uh, spe speedball, uh, a Ditko oh, speedball yeah. kind of energy thing. It, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep, totally, yeah, yeah, good Good catch there. It does look very much like that, but uh, Ben... Uh, and this is interesting. So after uh, Nephris Gamal uh, slaps away the mummy, uh, Ben comes up from behind and grabs him right by the buttocks. Yeah, yeah. Gra <laughs> gra grabs a rump there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I was thinking, uh, he really need to grab him there. And he, he does. He literally grabs this guy by his butt cheeks here and says, hold it, Jack. You and me got some unfinished business to settle. And he says, misshapen interloper, you shall feel the fury of a god. And uh, they they start going back and forth here, and there's a really big brawl, and it looks like Ben's in a little bit of trouble here. But uh, Lillian from somewhere has procured a mirror. A mirror, it, yeah. I, I, where'd she find that? Uh, maybe I in the, I the, don't AD, know. The, the ADT tent. <laughs> it, it, you know, maybe it was part of the rubble. Now there was just a mirror in the rubble. Um, but th something occurred to me. Now at, at this point, uh, Nephris. You, you see his word balloons, and they're very weird. You know, they're mm -hmm. not rounded word balloons at all. Now, are we supposed to take away that that is his voice, or are we supposed to understand that he is speaking another language? You know, I'm thinking, well, you figure everybody that's here now, except for Ben, can probably understand the Egyptian. Because I'm sure Lillian can, the mummy can, 
uh, well, probably with the, her new headdress, she can, but I don't know about Ben. Well, and that's just it. If it's another language, Ben doesn't know what the heck he's saying. I mean, he can get the the impulse, or, you know, the, the emotion from it, from how he's saying it, I'm sure. But it's like the specific words, Ben isn't going to have any idea what he's saying. Mm-mm. No, not at all. And they yeah, never make okay. it clear either way. No, yeah. But yeah, Lillian, she, you know, shows some bravery here and she has a pistol and a knife, but chooses to use a mirror to try to a reflect the, <laughs> the blast back at him. But it actually does work and it kind of blinds him here temporarily, right? Yeah, it, it apparently reflected right back on the on the same path that it came. So that energy hits and bounces right back and, and gets him in the eyeballs. Yeah, and while he's hurt, uh, Encantu comes over and says, since you will not restore me, I shall steal the stone from your chest and bend it to my will. So he's going to rip the stone out of uh, Gamal's chest here and use it to try to you know, regain his humanity. And at this point, Lillian sees uh, Alicia and says, Miss Masters, can you hear me? And she goes, she appears to be in a trance. And she grabs one of these uh, conduits here that has these uh, <laughs> arcing you know, wires and zaps the crap out of her. And it kind of like, you know, gives her a little bit of, uh, you know, her own uh, sentience back, right? Yeah, fortunately, yeah, you would you would think that, no, that's that's probably going to fry her <laughs> rather than just bring her back to her, her regular consciousness. Yeah, I was thinking that or just it wouldn't work at all. It would do nothing. You know, yeah, she just bounce off. Yeah, yeah, she's kind of like just this superpower now, so it wouldn't hurt her at all. But she has the wherewithal and she's like, Ben, what's happening? And he's like, I'll tell you later, baby. And uh, she, uh, Alicia says, I hear fighting. And we do see uh, the mummy here. And he's uh, going to town on uh, Gamal. And I love it. And she, uh, Lillian says, your former captor is being thrashed by a living mummy. I love uh, how it's uh, uh, put there. And uh, she right. says, you, you die hard priest. And I'm thinking, you die hard priest? Or no, you die hard comma priest. I'm thinking, a yeah, die hard priest. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so is it yeah it's like is bill willis gonna jump out somewhere else or you know what, what it's great does, though just the reference to die hard does that make this a christmas comic oh absolutely yeah yeah maybe that's bruce willis <laughs> there instead of come <laughs> on <laughs> but ben's like i'm gonna join in the fight here so he grabs a pillar from somewhere and yeah. uh, starts uh beating on uh gamal with it as well uh, but it doesn't really uh, seem to hurt him all that much. So he then says, I shall put it ba- this battle to an end and like just gestures with his hand. And out of nowhere, we see like, you know, uh, spears like w- that would have been used in ancient times as a weapon. And they're hurtling towards uh, Encantu and Ben. And Ben says, sheesh, he pulled them spears out of thin air. And then uh, Gamal says they are far more than inanimate weapons. And they turn into snakes, and here we get the you know basically the cover in a couple of small panels, right? Right. Yeah. This is this is like part of the cover, the fight scene. Actually, this looks like almost exactly the same portion. Uh-huh. And then where uh, our two Egyptians, de- Egyptian deities, are are busting out of the the building that they're in, that is like the background of the cover. And then they like superimposed this image into the foreground, and mm-hmm. it's like those two are what they used for the cover. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so uh, in Kantu and uh, Ben here, they get, you know, caught, you know, wrestling with, I don't know, maybe three or four or five snakes. And uh, Gamal says, I shall store your power within the gem. Uh, well, he says he's, he's going to, he goes, they were not intended to slay you, but only to hold you while I drain your life force into me. So he's, you know, somehow able to pull a, 
you know, an act here where he can drain their life force out and like almost like add their life force to his power here, which mm-hmm. is kind of crazy. And he says he's going to use it to create an army of mindless enforcers. And uh, I'm thinking, OK, uh, you really need enforcers if you're this all powerful uh, God. Yeah, know. really. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> And he goes, and then Lillian says, quickly, Ms. Masters, you must stop him. And she says, me, but how? I have no powers. And she says, you do not, but the crown of Hathor does. And she goes, but I don't know how to use it. What if I fail? And she goes, then we are worse than dead. And uh, so, you know, we're, we're getting to the, the last act here. And she says, you know, uh, Ben mustn't die. And she uses her, you know, uh, you know headdress here uh, to zap the crap out of uh, Gamal. And she says, I cannot kill you, evil one, but I shall destroy your source of power. And as she does blast him, the the, the gem uh, loosens and comes away from his chest. And uh, <laughs> the snakes start to disappear here. And then, uh, you know, we, we know what's going to happen here with Ben, right, when he gets a hold of this. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you certainly know from the, the personality that Ben is that he's, yeah, he's going to do something. So nobody else can use the gem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he says, uh, you know, Holy Hannah, uh, a priest, a Holy Hannah. And he says, uh, Gamal says, I will die without the gem to sustain this body. Please save me. Give me the power to live. And Ben's holding it right in front of him and says, how? What should I do? And uh, Gamal says, it is already too late. And as he starts to crush the the, the gem here, the, our buddy uh, Nephris, Gamal, whatever you want to call him, he just turns to dust. So what what did you think of this end here? Well, I guess what it was was that was no longer Gamal's like body. It mm-hmm. was Nephris's body. And so without the energy from the gem, the the body like returned to a natural state, which at three thousand years old, I guess would be the dust that we see here. Mm-hmm. And like uh, you do see Ben and Alicia, you know, he's Ben's kind of comforting her. And uh, we have Lillian there with the, the headdress and everybody's kind of having a bit of a somber moment here because, you know, obviously Gamal was a uh, kind of a wing nut of a guy here, but, you know, he, he's dead. So everybody's kind of just like, oh, boy. And, you know, the mummy's in the background there. And, you know, uh, the, the caption box then reads, but like the priest who achieved the peace and Kantu so desperately, um, Wishes he could embrace, and Kantu is a part of the past. And there's the the, the ashes of the priest laying there, and just the headdress. And you know, we see uh, the the uh, our buddy and Kantu go wandering off here. You know, it's pretty sad, right? Yeah. Um. To to initiate all this, we we didn't say, but what Ben did is he he crushed that gem in his hand, just like. But yeah, gem. Uh, 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 what what are they called? Paper jewelry. Uh, he just you know crushed. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, also, uh, a thought occurred to me uh, for those listening that don't have access to the book uh, in talking about the the Egyptian outfit that Lillian had. Just think um, slave Leah. And and that'll be the the outfit that she is wearing from. Oh, uh, Alicia. Yeah. Yeah. From Star Wars. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry. Not Lily. Alicia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's basically like the teeny tiniest of a bikini ish bottom. And it has that. And there again, there's a specific name for this, too. I don't know what it is uh, right. over in that culture where it's like almost like a, a piece of cloth that uh, hangs down in the front, in the back. And then just a uh, uh, one of those uh, 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 bikini top types that looks like it's uh Almost like conical, like a, like a shell, like a conch. <laughs> yeah, is that is that like a, a Madonna bustier? Yep, and it's held on by like it looks like a rubber band. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
a, a chain between them in the front, but then yeah, some kind of little itty bitty spaghetti strap in the in the back inside. But um, that that one scene where she's falling uh, through the air, having encountered the arcing uh, power conduit, mm-hmm. Kupperberg had to pay special attention to cover her crotch with her uh, dress the way that she's falling there. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. We that was. You, there could be some major uh, wardrobe malfunctions here. Well, yeah, there, there, there would be a, a massive rating change in the in the comic if, <laughs> if he had not done that. Yeah, yeah. That when but, you want to draw, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go, go ahead. My bad. Yeah, when you want to draw a character in very skimpy clothing, whether they're male or female, you you really have to be aware of uh, if there's like you know action going on, uh, <laughs> where where things will end up. <laughs> right, Mo- movement becomes particularly important. Yeah. It's... <laughs> Uh, yeah. But all, all of the, the the joking aside, you're, you're right. It, it does end on kind of a somber note, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, m- multiple ways. Somebody died, uh, which he, he was the bad guy. So that's that's not necessarily supposed to make us feel bad. Mm-hmm. But it's written in this way that, that it, it does. You know, we, we should feel bad because someone died. Um the, the strain of Alicia being taken over and now being freed, all of the stuff that Ben had to do to rescue her, the fact that the living mummy did, did not change his predicament. You know, here was somebody that could have done something, either ended his life or made him completely human or, you know, something other than what he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if that's not bad enough, I, I, I get the Hulk... TV theme song in my head in this final <laughs> panel because yeah. the mummy just kind of shambles away in the desert. You still see the ashes of, of the bad guy. You could almost envision that the ashes are just kind of blowing away if it's a camera scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's all over here on the right-hand side of the panel. On the left-hand side of the panel is Ben and Alicia uh, comforting each other. And then Lillian standing holding the headdress uh, Perhaps the least affected of anybody, it, it looks like, potentially. But everybody is now facing away from the camera, away from you. So we see the mm-hmm. backs of all this occurring. And it's like, put that together with the, the like I say, the the theme song for the Hulk as, as Bixby is walking away at the end of the episode. And it's like, wow, what happened? This got so sad. Mm-hmm. I almost feel like it doesn't need to be sad. You have Alicia and Ben there. They're kind of, you know for lack of a better term reunited mm-hmm. you know hey hey and Kantu, just hook up with lillian i mean she's there she's you know she's she, into your culture come on yeah she may know more about you than anybody else on the planet so she could probably communicate with you like yep. what's the matter dude turn around and just be like uh hey lillian you want to you know go get a burger or something you you could convince her to try to help you i'm sure <laughs> Absolutely. So we don't need to end on a sad note other than Gamal being dead. And you can still see his ashes laying there, by the way, in the headdress. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, corpses, you know, they're they're they're, they're always a, a fun scene there in comic books. <laughs> yeah, but he was the bad guy. So it's like, eh, yeah, yeah. Nobody deserved dog. Nobody's really feeling sorry for him. But no, yeah, when, like you said, really. the whole the whole Hulk moment with the poor Encanto there. And I'm not sure when Encanto shows up next in continuity. It's probably quite a while. It's just simply because uh, I think this was almost an outlier because you figure that his series had been over for quite a long time at this point. Right. Yeah. Um, Supernatural thrillers. Yep. 
So I'm thinking to my yeah, I'm thinking to myself, he's he probably didn't come back for quite some time. Uh, according to the CM, the complete Marvel reading order. Um, mm-hmm. Nope, this is a different living mummy. I apologize. Let me try this again. Apparently, there's one on another world too. Um, it says the next appearance is in. Well, no, this appearance occurred before um, in 1968 in Captain America 36. Or no, that's the 68 volume. Uh, eight, six years, Captain America 361 from from wow. this appearance. Wow. Yeah, that's 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 quite a while. I, I just and, feel like he. Go ahead. And and between uh, supernatural thrillers and this, apparently the Living Mummy was in a couple issues of uh, Contest of Champions. Oh, okay, that's interesting. I'll have so, to look that up. Uh, it would have just been background because I. I I know he wasn't any of the main contestants, you know, that were running around trying to find the pieces for the games master. Um, but the, the, it was three issues and apparently he had scenes in one and three. So he's, he's probably in the background somewhere. So from 75 until this, which is 83. So that's what two years, eight years. That that's mm-hmm. a long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I know uh, there have been some more modern, like, ha ha kind of funny appearances mm-hmm. and stuff like that but mm-hmm. i just thought to myself like oh yeah where else is uh, you know has he been or can you even look him up i just feel like he was somebody that was you know obviously from uh, tomb of dracula werewolf by night monster of frankenstein he's co- probably like you know number four after those three characters so it's not you know really shocking that he wasn't used a lot or very much at all for years on end but i do think it's funny that some writers were just like yeah i'm gonna throw him in there that that was a little bit of a deep dive to uh to you know, who who can we team Ben Grimm up? Who, who haven't we used? And mm-hmm. somebody somewhere is like, well, if we take Ben to Egypt, we can use uh, the Living Mummy. Uh, yeah, so I, probably Craft mm-hmm. Red. To be honest, supernatural thrillers, you know. And so mm-hmm. he somewhere in his uh, file file knowledge in his head, he he knew that character, and so he's like, yeah, we we could do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I am looking to uh, that issue you were saying about of Captain America. I do have that issue. It's during that storyline. I think it was like six issues long called the Bloodstone Hunt and kind of had a little bit to do with Ulysses Bloodstone. Like he was dead by now, but it kind of had to do with, uh, uh, I don't know if it, who it was, that some villain had gotten the idea that they had found out where he was buried or something like that. And they were going to steal the Bloodstone or, and they was going to give them power or whatever. Yeah, okay, I remember well, that. He, I have He's that. a monster hunter. Uh, Bloodstone mm-hmm. was so yeah. uh, the living mummy's a monster. So I, I guess you could you could fit that in there somehow. Mm, oh, uh, I think maybe uh, Baron Zemo might have been the guy that was uh, looking for it. Uh, those dang Nazis! Mm-hmm. It's always <laughs> Nazis, man. Can't get rid of them. <laughs> <Golly>. <laughs> but yeah, I'm gonna have to look up uh, some of these other appearances because uh, well, I like Inkatu. I think he's really cool. I wish they would have used him more. Well, here I'll uh, pass this list. To you and you can see the uh, uh it looks like it's a fairly accurate list and mm-hmm. i like this i like this website they do a really good job of keeping up with stuff like that so i'll pass this list to you doesn't look like there's anything major until uh the middle 2000s that yeah he's really I, used again so i kind of do remember that because i was still reading new comics back then uh him popping up in uh a couple of just you know weird appearances here and there and like maybe like a deadpool like a ha ha funny kind of thing mm-hmm. you know but uh yeah i really like this character quite a bit you know so 
I'll definitely, you know, dig out. I, like I said, I know for sure I have that Captain America book. So I'll definitely be, you know, sifting through the books to find that. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, all right. Well, that is going to, uh, take us out here, my friend, you know, we're going to, you know, uh, like I said, uh, this is going to be, uh, our final episode here covering, uh, uh, the living mummy. And you and I have some, uh, plans that we are going to be covering, uh, a, a certain, let's just say Jack Kirby character. Uh, we won't reveal who it is, but, uh, uh, a series uh, with one of his characters uh, uh, from the Bronze Age. Uh, we're going to start covering that uh, sooner than later as well. And I'm really looking forward to that. What do you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, you, there, there can never be enough discussion about Kirby. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're not kidding. Yeah. The guy was just his brain had just so much in it, so many ideas and so much fun, cool stuff. And obviously fantastic artwork. I cannot wait to talk about that but yeah that's that's gonna do it for now but if anybody uh, wants to uh, find you out there and uh, listen to what you have going on uh, you have a lot of podcasting going on where can they uh, look um teal productions t-e-a-l like the color on twitter one word um is where i post actually ultimately i post uh or repost everything i do uh, you know these these episodes i've been doing with billy uh, a superman show i'm involved in a boom uh boom addiction that i'm involved in all, all those and, and my own personal things um i talk about i've got a show about dr fate i've got a show about thor that's eh, kind of on hiatus lately uh i talk about usagi Jimbo. he's he's ultimately my favorite character in comics and i've got another one where i just talk about different things you know whatever comes up in my head at the moment and uh, typically, it's going to be like 70s and 80s uh, indie kind of stuff like Capital Comics and Pacific Comics and stuff like that. That's probably my favorite time frame. Um, definitely my favorite time frame. Uh, those books, I think, are, are underserved as far as people talking about them. A lot of uh, I think a lot of younger comic book fans maybe just aren't exposed to those anymore with the movies and the mm-hmm. TV shows and, you know, all the all the new hotness is Marvel and DC, but man, there were a lot of really killer stuff before uh, Marvel and DC got as big as they are now. I mean, obviously they've been around since the thirties for DC and the sixties for Marvel. So they've been around, but there are so many other comic books and comic book publishers that just need, need some light. You know I mean? It's only Mm -hmm. fair of their, their place in, in, in history. Um, that that somebody talk about them. Yeah. So I, I try to cover those things that that I like first of all, but that maybe I, I don't hear a lot of other people talking about. And uh, that show is called uh, Newsprint Commando. So all those I, I drop links on Twitter whenever a, a new episode comes out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Newsprint Commando is a blast. Um, I'm current on that. Uh, your uh, Ronin Rabbit. I just cleared episode 100. I think yesterday or the day before. Okay. So I'm catching up. I'm eventually going to catch you. <laughs> yep, you're you're getting there. You're getting there. I can I can. Those are, to, you know, and for people like that might be interested in any of these, that you can definitely, you know, your newsprint commando. You like you said, you talk about a single issue of you know an indie comic from 70s 80s. So generally, that show is 20 30 minutes mm-hmm. tops. Yeah. Uh, same thing with the Usagi Ojimbo. That's not a super long show either. So if people want to do what I'm doing with uh, the Usagi Ojimbo stuff, you know, the Ronin Rabbit, that it's, you can, if you have the time, like I do, especially if you have a commute or whatever, you can literally, I, I can, I think I've already probably listened to at least five of those episodes in one day. Okay, yeah, yeah. Like you say, they're they're usually, 
seldom are they more than 30 minutes. Uh, mm-hmm. Typically, they're longer than 20. So they they're, they average both of those shows between 20 and 30 minutes. I talk about just the one book. You know, my, my thought is to keep it short and to keep it pretty, you know, pretty centered. Just talk about this one book and then and then that's it. The next episode is the next book in, in order. Um, I like to go chronological. I believe one of our podcast associates way back in the day uh, coined the term index show or index mm-hmm. podcast. Yep. And and that's for me, I, I really prefer that because you you once you get into it, you stay with it. You you keep talking about that character or that storyline or you know, I I know there are other shows out there that will take a character and they'll just pop around. And that's interesting, but if if you want to like my ultimate goal is to get somebody to read along with me talking. And so that that's going to be easier to do if you if you do it in some kind of order because that's how it's collected or that's the way, you know, if you go to your box and you have the actual issues, of course, you're going to have them in order. or So, so it, it, it keeps in my mind, it, it helps keep that continuity, it makes the show maybe a little bit easier to, to follow. Yeah, I when you're when uh, I listen to a podcast, if it's a podcast covering comics, and it's covering a a character driven book. I prefer it to be an index show. Um, if it's you know just talking about like something random like anthology horror books, hey, go ahead, jump around, go crazy because oh, yeah, you yeah. To, yeah, yeah, you don't have to go in order. But when it's a, a character and there's continuity, any continuity, or especially if it's continuity heavy, like yeah, I prefer it's like hey, start out at the beginning and go from there. And that's that's what right. you did with Doctor Fate as well. You started yeah. out in the golden age. Yeah. Yeah, yeah boy, that, that was, those were some <laughs> fun stories to read, man. Uh, mm-hmm. DC golden age characters are, they're just, they're a kick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, there's some wild stuff there. And it's funny too, because it seems like it was wild. And then, you know, the silver age comes along and it caught a little more just superhero ish, but then the bronze age comes along and you had people experimenting and trying weird, different things. It's just funny to look at comic books over the, the time periods. Yeah. Yeah. If you, you know, if you were to, to sit down uh, for a long, long term character like that and you picked uh, a story from Golden, Silver and Bronze Age and gave those stories to somebody to read, they could immediately tell that the stories were <laughs> different, even though it was the same character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, artistically, too, from the Golden oh, Silver yeah. to Bronze, there's such huge differences. You know, it's just it's and it's not I wouldn't say one's better than the other, but just there's definitely some stark differences. Yeah, they're they're just different. It was different times, different places that the creators came from, different things that the creators were trying to tell you. It, you know, e- each one is very much a product of its its time and place in history. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, all right. Well, that's going to wrap us up. Although, oh, I just did look too on the very last uh, comic page. Mm-hmm. I, I did want to mention there's a really cool uh, ad for D and D. I was like, whoa, look at this. Oh yeah, the the comic uh, that mm-hmm. was running through. You know, when I sat and read that, I thought, you know, is there somewhere I could go online and find out where all of these different parts are and and read the story continuously to see what happens but yeah i always love these um it's an ad for D, like you say but it's it's a a short four or five panel comic each time mm-hmm. almost like a, a newspaper strip yeah. yeah yeah and and i i remember these i don't know that i was ever able to like put them together but i i do remember reading them when i was buying these books off the shelf so now i wonder if we could go online and find a list of 
just one title or or the months that the different pieces came in so that if we have those books, we could go through and read this story from beginning to end. That would be kind of cool. Oh, I feel as if we, you know, maybe when we finish here, I'll take a quick pick and put it out there on the Internet. I feel like there's somebody somewhere that has probably pieced those all together. Oh, I would this, love to read it. <laughs> yeah, this is this is awesome. Down at the very bottom, it really jumps out to it. It gives you the year uh, as if you didn't know the year of the comic, you know, from the indicia in the beginning. But 1982. And I'm like, wow, that is. Yeah. Way too many years ago. Yeah, it's like yeah, really great ad though. I think it's the, the the best ad in the whole book. There are some fun ones, but I thought I thought that one was the best. There was a I will say too, there was a two page ad for the new Spider Man video game. Yes, yeah, right in the center of the book too for uh, the uh, Atari video computer system. <laughs> two, two whole pages. That's like that's a lot of real estate, man. But it's their own product basically, so it's like yeah, they'll they'll mm-hmm. do that. I'm sure they were making bank when those games were sold. But, yeah, very good art. It looks like probably John Romita, I would say, and uh, really cool. But, but, yeah, that D&D ad, to me, I was like, wow, that really jumped out. That was my favorite ad of the whole book. Yeah, this was for the Atari. I guess this is the first mm-hmm. first version yeah. of the Atari, looking at that controller there that Spider-Man's holding. Yeah, yep. good. The, the ads. The, the, if If the art and the writing doesn't put you in the time period, the ads – absolutely will in in these older books man yep absolutely it's a it's a a time machine (laughs) yeah yeah for sure and and you know that is why all of the ads and stuff like that need to be saved out of these books Mm -hmm. you know you you get the the new compendiums and and they're first of all they do a crappy job of changing the coloring and the coloration i think It's, it's atrocious what they do to these Bronze Age books when they publish them in these new compendiums. But there's never, uh, you know, uh, there are hundreds, thousands of us comic book fans that dig the letters pages out of these books. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you put that together with the, there's even been a podcast, I think. Somebody made a podcast about talking about letters pages from various books, I think. Well, that's possible. Yeah, I think that does ring a bell. I can't think of yeah, or what that is, but it does sound familiar. Yeah, um, but the ads, all the different ads in these books, those things. Now, I do know that there is a podcast that talks about the ads in Bronze Age books. Um, yeah, all, all that stuff needs to be saved, just like the story in and and the artwork in these books. So, you know, Marvel and DC, man. If if anybody out there is listening and and part of all that, when you guys reprint these, you've got to reprint them complete. I know it's pages, and I know there are people that don't want that stuff, but there are people who do want that stuff, and they will buy your your complete compendiums also because they include that stuff. So don't don't leave that behind and, and people forget about that. It's just as important as the as the actual comic-y part of the books. Yeah, and I mean I realize like you would have to probably slim down trades and yeah. then make more volumes because of the page count being higher. But I would prefer that. Like I have the, uh, like DC in the last few years has put out omnibus editions of house of mystery and house of secrets. And I just got the third house of mystery a few weeks ago. And again, they're, they're put together. Well, they're great. I like them, but they're not the same because there's no letters pages. There's no ads and it's on this bright, I wouldn't say shiny colored paper, but yeah, it, it, it's nothing like holding the actual 
no. Bronze Age horror comic in your hand that's like a little worn and you know it's just it's not the same experience not by a long shot no and and you know a really good example is back in the day before really trade paperbacks became popular when comic book collectors would actually go and have their comics bound mm-hmm. they they would have parts of the book trimmed you know the the spine and maybe the top and bottom but seldom have i ever seen anybody who had their books bound that had letters, pages, and ads trimmed out also. No, no, they usually it's complete. Include those. Yes. Yeah. And there's, yep. there's a reason for that, you know? So mm-hmm. yeah, if you're, if you're going to preserve, p- preserve all of it. Yep. Yep. I totally agree. I, I, I would rather they took a little bit more time, put out an extra volume here and there. Yeah. And I, I would, I would spend the, the, the money on another trade. Uh, if they did that, because again, it's it's better. I, I get so much more of a, an experience with the complete, you know, thing. Like you said, letters, pages, ads, like stand soapbox, and all that crazy stuff. Like oh the man, ch- checklists, and, all that stuff. It's fun. And nowadays, as as Marvel and DC, you know, if you're afraid of the amount of investment and return on investment and everything like that, then go to Indiegogo or Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Get the number of people that you need to pay the amount of money that you need to get it done, and you'll be able to get it done that way for sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I have seen a few uh, of probably of mutual friends of ours that still do uh, get their stuff uh, bound. Um, bound. Like, yeah, yeah. The, the yeah. last, the last one I remember seeing was a yard sale artist, our uh, buddy Jared Albrecht. There, he had something bound. I, I can't remember what it was, but uh, he did a video uh, and showed a. a a bound edition that uh, he just got back from a uh, uh, not a publishing company. What would you call that? Bind- bindery uh, or uh... yeah, a book bindery. I guess you would call it. Uh, yeah. And it, it looked great. It looked fantastic. I thought, oh man, there's a lot of stuff I have in singles. I would love to do that rather than have trade. Absolutely, yeah. And and chances are, whatever he had bound probably is out there in trade. But he wanted it bound that way more mm-hmm. and was willing to pay for that rather than going out and getting the trade paperback that is out. Yeah, like I'm thinking off the top of my head, you know, uh, this past spring, I had finished covering Night Force uh, by DC Ooh. Comics. You can get yeah. that in trade, readily available, probably hardcover and softcover. I, I would rather have those single issues bound than have that trade. Yeah. yeah you know, that's, that's just uh, one example off the top of my head of stuff I know I have here that I don't already have in a trade that I think, man. And you can literally get the trade for like 15 bucks at like a oh, third yeah. third party outlet right now. It's it's yeah. that cheap. It's like a forty dollar trade you can get for like fifteen bucks. But I, I would anymore, rather have issues. It's getting to the point where almost up until recently, almost everything Marvel and DC has put out, uh, you you can find in trade. Certainly all the mm-hmm. the modern stuff. Probably most of the Bronze Age stuff. Now you you get into silver, and for DC you get into gold, and yeah, that gets a little dicey. But mm-hmm. uh, you know we're we're talking we're we're living in the Bronze Age here. A lot of that stuff has been traded already, but yep. just not the way that we would like it to be traded. Yeah, just not how we would prefer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's but- all. All right. Well, that is uh, going to wrap us up here. We, you know, covered a really fun comic. We went full old man, get off my lawn and everything in this. One. Yes. Yes. I was, <laughs> I was shaking my fist as I was talking. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh yeah. Old man shakes fist at clouds. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> 
so yeah, that's going to do it. And uh, like I said, look forward uh, in the future here uh, and I uh, talking some Kirby as well. And then definitely get out there and give him a follow and uh, subscribe to all his shows too. A lot of fun shows there and a lot of different uh, variation too. So there's something for everybody there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Thank, thank you for, for bringing it up. I appreciate that. You betcha. So, all right, let's, uh, we're going to jump out of here and I'll be back in a minute to wrap up the show. Okay, everybody that wraps up this episode. Once again, I want to thank Val for agreeing to be on the show. You know, busy guy, got a lot going on, but took time out of his schedule to talk to Ed and I. Of course, as always, I want to thank Ed as well. You know, he's a good guy. Definitely check out everything I have for him in the show notes. Uh, Val Mayerick as well. And uh, be back here in another week for some more good old Bronze Age horror.